welcome back to Lighting the Pipes. Today, we're going down into the tunnels. We're going into the tunnels of Los Angeles, into the tunnels of Vietnam, and into the tunnels of Michael Connolly's prose with The Black Echo, the very first Hieronymus Bosch mystery. Joining me, as always, is Josh. It's fantastic to see you, buddy. Uh, it's you been too. a while since... Love the Deerstalker, by the had- way. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Well, I decided that I would try to channel my inner Sherlock here today to deconstruct the character of Hieronymus Bosch and um, share with your good self and with our listeners our, our opinion on this first of a very successful chain of novels. Is it 23, 24, 25 now? I don't Learning about Michael Connolly and his writings, I've learned that uh, he has many characters that he's created and they all yep. fit in together into this wide Harry Bosch universe. The Bosch verse, right, yeah. I guess you could say. <laughs> the Bosch verse, yeah, yeah. No, Connolly's a, a very fascinating figure, uh, and I think you're going to share some information on that. But uh, before we get too far ahead of ourselves, just like to welcome everybody along the journey with us. It's been a little while since we've had our dear stalkers on. Josh, last book we did was John Buchan's The 39 Steps. And as this season progresses forward, I've got to say it's been really fun looking at these first novels in series with you. We've had a couple of little extras, of course, with like, you know, the likes of Graham Greene and whatnot. But this has been, it's been a lot of fun doing these, um, doing these books. And here's another one we're adding to our list. Over 73 million uh, Connolly books been published. And of course, uh, not just Bosch on print, but Bosch on Amazon is a big product as well. Seven Seven seasons seasons now. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So... Lots to talk about, buddy. Um, why don't we just make a great start right into this after welcoming everybody and uh, hope you enjoy the show, folks. We're going to give you our pipes, but not before we learn a thing or two about our author. So BFG, over to you. Yes, so Michael Connolly was born July 21st, 1956 in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. His father was a property developer, and he was also a struggling artist. Now, I couldn't quite find out what he was a struggling artist about or what he did, but I think that could possibly go into certain descriptions or descriptions of art in the story itself that we're about to get into. Mm. Mm -hmm. His mother was a homemaker, but she loved her crime fiction. Mm-hmm. And she introduced, uh, I was say Harry, uh, she introduced uh, Michael at an early age to the mystery novel. And the actual, the mystery novel, and in particular, our favorite uh, American-born but Irish-English upbringing turned to America, turned to L.A. crime writer Raymond Chandler, played a big influence in Michael Connolly's life. I'll say. Yeah, which is kind of interesting because if you read the foreword with Michael Connolly's The Black Echo, mm-hmm. the, the person who wrote the foreword talks a lot about James N. Kane being an inspiration for Michael Connolly, but nowhere does it mention Chandler. And I, I find that shocking based on just the yeah. writing of The Black mm-hmm. Echo, the setting of The Black Echo, and not just that, but also Michael Connolly's own life, which I'll get into here. Mm-hmm. I'm interested to hear that because my forward is written by Ian Rankin and he talks a lot about Chandler. So I bet he does. Yeah. So it's interesting how different forwards do. Yeah. Yeah. That's really cool. Uh, So when he turned 12, his family moved to Fort Lauderdale, Florida. And then he attended uh, St. Thomas Aquinas High School. Uh, He got a job when he was 16 working, uh, walking, uh, sorry, walking, washing dishes at a hotel. And one day on the way home, he saw a man leave the hotel, 
and threw something in a hedge. And when he checked to go see what it was, uh, he found a lumberjack shirt, uh, like a plaid lumberjack shirt, mm-hmm. uh, which was wrapped around a gun, a handgun. So he went mm-hmm. home mm-hmm. and told his father what he found. His father got the police involved and they investigated. Now, the man who dropped the gun, he disappeared from the hotel. They couldn't find him afterwards. Uh, but this got Connolly fascinated with the, uh, I, I, I suppose, the intricacies of police work. And so mm-hmm. it's already kind of his mom with the crime fiction background and now this experience, you know, seeing how these guys work and whatnot. Yeah. He was still, though, on the train to following his father's footsteps uh, in terms of property management. Uh, he went to the University of Florida at the Gainesville, uh, in Gainesville at the Rinker School of Building Construction. And this fizzled out for him. He received dismal grades. So one day uh, he decided to go to a movie. And that was to see Robert Altman's The Long Goodbye, mm-hmm. which is an adaptation, of course, of Raymond Chandler's novel. Uh, one it I is, think is yeah. one of the mm-hmm. best Chandler novels and probably one of the best American novels ever written. Yeah, we no, did a great episode it is, it on is that. The best Raymond Chan- it is the best Raymond Chandler novel, and it's also one of the best American novels ever written, I should say that. Yeah, uh, yeah. You can, uh, you can check out our episode on The Long Goodbye from last year if, if you're keen on that. Last year? No, it wasn't. It was since Christmas, wasn't it? Did we do that? It was, yes. Yeah, it was this year, but last season. Yeah, (laughs) It's a bit of blur, man. It's a bit of blur. It does, yeah. Great movie, though. Yeah. It's an interesting movie. It's got some uh, really nice music, uh, uh, quite creatively used in the film, too, by John Williams, yeah. And uh, the dude that sings the song, it's the same guy that sings that uh, Conjunction Junction song for the, uh, you know, the after-school specials, the ABC stuff used to get... There's a long goodbye And it happens every day When some passerby Invites your eye To come her way Oh, right, yeah. That guy. This is how a bill becomes a law, that kind of stuff. <laughs> That's right. I yeah, remember, like, yeah. seeing, like, on, like, uh, when they made fun of that, I am not, like, uh, da- on The Daily Show with Jon Stewart, they would make fun of mm-hmm. those, like, animations, I believe. Yeah, they do. Anyway, sorry, sorry. <laughs> no worries, no worries. So after this experience, uh, he dove into Chandler's works, which his mom had, which he had access to because of his mom. And uh, he transferred to the University of Florida's Journalism and Communications Program. And... He was going to be a mystery writer. That's what he wanted to do. That's what he wanted so his, to do. So afterwards, in 1980, he got his first line of work with the Daytona Beach News, and then onward to the Fort Lauderdale News and Sun Sentinel in 1981. He covered the crime mm-hmm. beat. He was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize for his work interviewing the survivors of Delta Flight 191 in 1985. And this accolade got him an offer as a crime reporter for the Los Angeles Times. So him and his wife, uh, Linda McCaleb, they moved to California in 1987. Now, the inspiration of Raymond Chandler's life continued with him when he was able to finally rent out an apartment at High Tower Court. And this is where Philip Marlowe lived in the novel The High Window. Well, I was going to ask you about that, buddy, because I, I read that on Wikipedia, but am I right in saying that he, he just basically asked the manager to the like, the let manager. me know when this, when this becomes available because I want it? It wasn't until Did he it? was mid... Yeah, yeah he, he didn't even have the Black Echo done. It was way afterwards. 
uh, like I think in the mid '90s when he got okay. the apartment finally, and he just used that as a place for yeah. writing. Cool. Yeah. Okay. Right. So definitely looking to channel the inner Chandler there. Yeah, absolutely. Kind of a bit of also of like a. Um, I was going to say Chandler too, but in us uh, also like Graham Greene. Remember he got that loft that he would go and he'd go right in yeah. <laughs> and have affairs and have his affairs uh, in. Yeah, <laughs> it's, yeah. Uh, Michael Connelly seems pretty. Uh, he seems pretty Puritan compared to uh, our mm. friend uh, Graham Greene. Right? Who knows? Who knows? We're not Who here knows? to review him. We're here to review the book. No, <laughs> exactly. So yeah, so that's pretty cool. The, the, so more of uh, the Chandler influence in his life. Uh, as I said, he wouldn't get there until 10 years later when they had a couple of novels under his belt. Now, his first novel, The Black Echo, was published in 1992 by Little Brown. Uh, it won the Mystery Writers of America's Edgar Award for Best First Novel. And that reminds me, we should definitely get into the Edgar Allan Poe soon. I think we've been talking about it. We should definitely do it. <laughs> yeah, what is this Edgar? Be. Who is this Edgar they're talking about? Well, they're talking about Edgar Allan Poe. We're doing a, a series on the mystery novels and the we got to do Edgar Allan Poe. Like it, it seems almost like it's like me not seeing Casablanca or the Godfather until recent, until like the past couple of years, well, we should get into Edgar Allan Poe as soon as possible. And yeah, I think, I think that's, we'll, I think that's on the agenda. It is on the season's agenda. We're going to read the three Dupin stories. And he is, of course, as you say, Poe um, regarded as the, the, the father or the progenitor of the, uh, the, the, the detective story. So we're going to read the three Dupin stories and we're going to do those before Christmas. So uh, maybe a little holiday episode, kind of going back to our original Sherlock, maybe mold of doing uh, three stories in one, you know, we could do that. Yeah, definitely. We could definitely do something along yeah. those lines. But yeah, that's cool. That's cool. Nostalgic. So he's won the Edgar. He won the Edgar. He's won, he won the Edgar for his be for best first novel. That's a pretty good accolade. That is. Yeah. So, uh, just in terms of his writing, so he based uh, he based a lot of his writing on his true crime experiences and reportage uh, for the Los Angeles Times as a crime reporter. Now, the protagonist, Hieronymus Bosch, is named after the 16th century Dutch painter uh, who always presented imagery of like sin and redemption in his stories, which is a big theme, I think, in the Black Echo and probably in, all, in I would imagine probably in the Bosch series in general. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Now, one of the Bosch paintings, Hell, sits above Connolly's computer in his office. Ah, mm -hmm. and the way that he described his writing was that he likes a big canvas so this goes more into the painting metaphor where mm -hmm. he sees characters floating across as like currents of a painting and then what happens is that with these currents of the, of the painting they collide and they create cross currents so you know think of evidence in the black echo with the vault sequence about where the whole story seems to be going to be building up towards that sequence in terms of all the different threads that are placed from the beginning that yeah. you follow yeah. through. And that's kind of, you know, how certain characters yeah, see collide yeah. and, and change things and change the situation, right? Letting the story be told through the characters, letting them interact into the world that he's created for them. Uh, he I wonder, brings though, characters how, how different is that, Josh, to Chandler's way of noodling it, his it, stories? It, it, it's like, very similar. I would argue, yeah. though, that Connolly probably has a more coherent idea of story than mm -hmm. Chandler did, though. Yeah, but yeah, I guess when you're writing on yellow note cards, you know, you got to remember a lot, don't you? <laughs> and I think, I think too, is that um, Connolly could put together narratives very well working as a journalist, you know what I mean? Yeah. And, yeah. and seeing those story experiences and whatnot. And another thing is that uh, he likes bringing characters back from previous books that 
you know, from long ago and then appearing like eight books later. Uh, that's one thing he does. He has a very Dickensian aspect to his writing, um, kind of like series like, like for example, the Rebus books, Rankin's Rebus books, or uh, TV series like The Wire, for example, which examines all levels of, you know, pol- of the politics, the, the police, mm-hmm. the street, the crime, all the those things together, yeah. right? The education. He, he examines all those things in his stories, the whole infrastructure of the city of Los Angeles. We're getting kind of, in a way, a modern version of like Chandler's, Marlowe's LA uh, in, in, the, in, in, in Bosch's uh, world, in my view, anyways. I kind of, okay. I feel there's similarities to it. Uh, he has a hunch where his story is going when he sits down to write. And uh, he uses real-world events, as we know, like, for example, Vietnam War and the Black Echo. He also talks about the 1992 Los Angeles riots, 9-11. Uh, so he goes through all those things in his story. Okay. Uh, his for- after his fourth novel, The Last Coyote, was published, uh, he quit the job at the LA Times and became a full-time novelist. I guess the royalties were coming in. He was making the money. Yeah. Uh, see the future that- line for himself, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um his popularity was further skyrocketing in, in uh, when Bill Clinton was seen with a copy of his book at a Los Angeles airport. Uh, and they actually had it doesn't it. hurt when a president reads one of your books, does it? Yeah, like JFK and uh, Ian Fleming. Like JFK with uh, Ian Fleming, yeah. yeah. Yeah, Clinton had a copy of The Concrete Blonde, and uh, apparently uh, at the airport there was an arranged meeting between him and Michael Connolly. <laughs> All right, cool. Now, he also created other characters. This is what I'm talking about earlier about the Bosch verse. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you may have heard of, so there's a book called Poet, where he introduced a reporter, Jack McAvoy, who appears in other stories as well in the Bosch verse. Then there's a, uh, then there's Bloodwork, which is featuring an FBI agent, Terry McCaleb. And this was uh, made into a movie directed by and starring Clint Eastwood in 2002. Cool. Uh, another character is Cassie Black. She was the protagonist for the freestanding book Void Moon. Uh, Black was a thief that works in Las Vegas. And there's, there's crossovers with uh, with Bosch and McCaleb, and as well as another character that he created was uh, actually Bosch's half-brother named Mickey Holly, who is a Los Angeles defense attorney. And the first book is called The Lincoln Lawyer, and this is a well-known film in, from 2011 starring Matthew yeah. McConaughey yeah, as Holler. Yeah. yeah. Cool. So very interesting, and there's also stories where Mickey Holler appears uh, with with uh, Bosch as, as well. So they bring in his character, right? Uh, yeah. So yeah, very kind of extended universe yeah. that he's created and stuff, right? Uh, and has he? It definitely he work- shows how much he loves writing. You know, like he has writing. Yeah. He's married with yeah. a daughter. He seems like he has a strong yeah. family. They even moved to, back to Florida afterwards when he retired. When they when he left the LA Times, just so mm-hmm. that they could you know be with the family and stuff like that. So he seems to be having a good life. <laughs> and does he have involvement or do, I know he has involvement in the Amazon series as a producer and as a writer. I know He's that. He's a consulting producer. Yeah. Did he have any work done or did he have any credits on, on the films that were earlier adapted, like the Eastwood picture or the McConaughey piece? I'm not sure exactly. I think he might have got like, you know, probably the rights and, and whatnot. I'm not right. quite sure. I know he, he, I don't know the name of it, but I know that he uh, produced a documentary about Los Angeles. That was one that he did. Okay, cool. right. And he also released an album of like the sounds of Bosch or something where he used a lot, because he's in, really into jazz, much yeah, like yeah. Harry Bosch is. Yeah, so, he that, comp- yeah. so he brings, uh, he did a whole album about his favorite jazz pieces. And I think he produced a documentary about uh, a, 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 like a like a jazz a singer. I forget who the uh, who the who the singer was now, mm-hmm. or jazz jazz artist. I should say, not singer. Well, we can fact uh, check these things. Yeah, absolutely. But it's yeah. If you want to look look up more about uh, Michael Connolly, really interesting figure and great and and writer. Uh, and we know that, of course, we talked about the television series. Uh, 
fun things I, I, I didn't know about this, but um, if you ever watched uh, ABC's Castle starring uh, Nathan mm-hmm. Fillion, mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's, been, it's been a mystery novelist turned amateur detective. Uh, Connolly guest starred with uh, in a poker game with Fillion's Castle, as well as James Patterson, Dennis Lehane, and the late <laughs> Stephen J. Cannell. Uh, and they would, nice they would appear throughout the show playing a poker game all the time. Uh, nice. so that's, that, that's, that's pretty cool. Yeah. So that's, uh, that's pretty much, uh, he's, uh, he's published some, he's still, he's still writing, he's still publishing books. I don't know if the Bosch yeah, book sure series is, yeah. is done itself, but, uh, yeah, that's no, a little no. script yeah. on, um, Michael Connolly. Cool. Well, Michael Connolly is also, um, uh, he, he doesn't look dissimilar to a fine Canadian musician known as Bruce Coburn. I don't know if you put that connection together. I can but see he, that a little bit. He, yeah. He, he looks he's a, he's a lot little like more, Coburn. He's a bit more, um, what's, the, what's the word, a little more like um, robust, I suppose. But yeah, Maybe. He, he might be a bit yeah. more hefty, a bit more muscular maybe, but uh, <laughs> I don't know. I, I saw Coburn live in Edinburgh a few years ago. We had a little cocktail table right up next to him. It was awesome. And uh because you see, the great thing about some of these artists when they come abroad, you know, like they would sell out hockey stadiums back home, but, yes. you know, big arenas. And then you they come here and you can get them in little bars. It's just fantastic and really intimate. And Coburn's a big man. Like he's a tall guy and he's a big man. So I think they look quite similar with their white goatee and their earring and, you know, the, 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 yeah. round, or the round glasses, you know. Yeah. Anyway, yeah, sure. we're we're going down a rabbit hole. But uh, <laughs> yeah, that, that, that's uh, just, just some brief information. The... Um, Fast facts, if you will, on uh, Michael Connolly. I haven't seen Bloodwork, and I haven't seen uh, The Lincoln Lawyer. I heard The Lincoln Lawyer is really good, so. I have seen Bloodwork, but I had no idea because I watched it years ago. And uh, yeah. I, I, I must have watched it probably when it first came out in the cinema. I remember seeing that at the Majestic Cinema back I remember home, you so. talking about that. Yeah, it was a good film, but... Uh, because it's based off yeah. a story, like the story of the premise of the story is this guy gets like a heart transplant or something. Mm-hmm. And this is based off someone in real life that uh, he knew that this happened to. So he, well, the, this is just this, this the smaller details about it anyways, not yeah, was extrapolated yeah. in, in his story. Yeah, yeah. But he, yeah, he decided to do that one-off story. And then Terry McCaleb, which is also the name of, of his wife, of, of his wife's uh, last name, uh, became like a recurring character in the Bosch verse afterward. Very cool. Uh, anyway, Josh, you have prepared, as uh, we always do on the show, a summary, a plot summary for The Black Echo. So um, if listeners would like a reminder or a refresher of the action of the piece, Josh is going to take us through that now. And uh, we'll get you back here on the other side for lighting up our pipes. All right. In Michael Connolly's The Black Echo, we are transported to the early 90s where we meet Detective Hieronymus Harry Bosch. He is a 40-something chain smoker currently operating through the Hollywood division of the Los Angeles Police Department. He is also a veteran of the Vietnam War and carries those unexercised demons on his sleeve. We first encounter Bosch just following a small prologue in which a teen street urchin, later to be named Sharky, finds himself a witness to what will be soon revealed as a homicide. Bosch is awakened from a nightmare-slash-flashback to his experiences in the subterranean tunnels employed by the Viet Cong, because one anonymous call later and a body has been found in a drainage pipe near the Hollywood Reservoir. The officers on the scene wish to write off the OD'd victim found in the pipe as another sad but typical story. And even though there is evidence on the scene indicating drug use as the possible cause of death, Bosch recognizes the victim, William Billy Meadows, a fellow tunnel rat in the NOM. 
Someone who years later came to him for help one time in the midst of a heroin addiction that he was trying to beat. Bosch keeps this to himself, of course, but is adamant that he wants the autopsy performed as soon as possible to the utter chagrin of the men on the scene. One of these men is Jerry Edgar, his current partner, who is a police detective moonlighting as a real estate agent. He doesn't want Bosch to ruffle any feathers. But it's too late for that. Bosch was the maverick detective of the armed robbery division, and he even made some famous cases to have a movie and TV series based on his exploits. The royalties paid off, giving Bosch a safety cushion of cash and a cantilever stilt house in the Hollywood Hills. But refusing to settle down, this fame wouldn't last, at least not with the LAPD, when on the trail of the notorious dollmaker killer, he shot the prime suspect dead. Long considering him to be an outlier, set apart from the LAPD family, the Internal Affairs Division came down on Bosch like a hammer, and while they could not get rid of him, it was enough to have him transferred to the Hollywood Division, where they hoped to lose him in the dregs of the system. But things are about to change on that front. Bosch follows the clues. Meadows' seedy apartment shows signs of a struggle, plus an abandoned pawn shop ticket for an antique bracelet. Now, the pawn shop in question was broken into a few hours before Meadows' body was found, and various jewelry was stolen. One of the missing items matches the ticket number, an antique gold bracelet with jade inlay. Obina, the shop owner, gives Bosch the Polaroid as soon as he is certain that the break-in won't get ignored. Bosch continues the case at Hollywood HQ, where accessing the database, he determines that the bracelet stolen from the pawn shop was stolen previously from a safety deposit box at the Westland National Bank months before. It turns out that this robbery was under a federal investigation. Bosch heads to the district FBI headquarters where he meets one of the lead agents on the case of the bank robberies, Eleanor Wish. Also in the bullpen is her boss, John Rourke, special agent in charge, who is running the detail. Bosch probes a 30-something female fed with questions. He offers to assist with the details about Meadows, how it wasn't an accidental overdose but a homicide by the robbery crew to cover their tracks. Wish sends Bosch off coldly. Then the shit hits the proverbial fan. Bosch finds himself once again splayed across the anvil with the IAD bearing down towards him. The coroner Salazar confirms that Meadows OD'd, but there is evidence that he was tasered and tortured to death before he was given his lethal dosage. Bosch's intuitions are matching up, but he has angered IAD Deputy Chief Irving, who orders the division Captain Pounds to haul Bosch in. Bosch is lambasted by Pounds, as well as Irving's two IAD careerist cronies, Lewis and Clark. Not to be confused with the explorers. Lewis and Clark can't get anything off Bosch to pin him, but Pounds sends him packing with an imminent transfer. It seems that the FBI was not happy with his interference into their ongoing federal investigation. This does nothing to deter Bosch, however, who pursues the original lead in the case, the original witness who tipped off the police on the body. This theory is fed near the crime scene, where Bosch finds an empty spray paint can, as well as a shark-like design that, that, when searched as a signature tag of known juvenile delinquents, Bosch narrows it down to a sure thing, one Edward Fries, Sharky. Bosch calls the boy's mother, a sex line worker, probably sending parallels to his own mother, who we learn was a prostitute who died of an overdose, leaving Bosch to the not-so-tender mercies of the foster care system. At home, Bosch finds a message waiting for him. It's Clark, and the FBI has changed their tune, asking him to assist with their investigation. It appears they acted too harshly. Despite the last-minute reprieve from the feds, Deputy Chief Irving asks Lewis and Clark to continue to pursue Bosch. 
Bosch's second meeting with Eleanor Wish is an improvement over the previous, but still lukewarm. At FBI HQ, he is shown the details of the Westland Bank robbery, including a video of the vault and how they drilled their way into the foundations to access said vault. But it wasn't the money they were going after. Instead, they pilfered all the safety deposit boxes therein. One of those, of course, being the deposit box containing the bracelet. The video also provided a brief tour of the dark sewer tunnels that thieves used in the operation. No doubt this triggers Bosch given his extensive period with tunnels. Thence, Bosch and Wish then set out tracking down Sharky, who we learn is out there rolling over homosexual Johns for cash as well as offering them pornographic Polaroid selfies. By poking at Sharky's known associates, Wish and Bosch managed to track down Sharky and bring him to Hollywood Division for an interrogation. But not before, in one instance, Bosch undermines Wish's authority to locate Sharky. Sharky testifies to Bosch and Wish that he saw a white jeep with two other people shove a body into the drainage pipe that evening. Bosch needs more details, faces, etc., and suggests a hypnotism, but Wish says she needs to play it upstairs to get approval. Bosch has Sharky placed in a halfway house where he can be reached when convenient. Wish appears at Bosch's door later in the evening, calling for a truce. They bond over a few cold ones. Across the road, Lewis and Clark are parked outside, observing. The next day, Bosch and Wish are off to meet with Gordon Scales, a former colonel who served Vietnam and is currently running Charlie Company, a halfway house for wayward Nam vets in Ventura County. Meadows spent some time there in the late 80s. Scales seems to be the real deal, a serious religious man who aims to heal the souls of men broken by the war. Bosch is diplomatic with Scales, just enough to obtain a list of personal identification numbers and dates of birth for men who may have fraternized with Meadows during his brief time here. Bosch pieces it together that Meadows participated in the Westland bank robbery, but being the junkie that he was, pawned the golden bracelet for dope money, which led to his being murdered with the fatal overdose. Which brings Bosch back to the vault itself, the complete bypassing of the money and the focus on all the safety deposit boxes. If one item missing from the hall could turn against Meadows, it is for certain that the robbery could conceal a target they were not seeing. Once returned to the city, they cross-reference the pins and DOBs and come up with two likely possibilities, Art Franklin and Gene Delgado. Like Meadows, they did not adjust well to civilian life and got busted on robbery raps that led them to Charlie Company around the time Meadows was present. With pictures available, Bosch could use some of Sharky's testimony. But upon calling the halfway house, he learns that Sharky has split. Despite this setback, Eleanor and Bosch take a stroll through the replica of the Vietnam Memorial at the veteran's graveyard just across the street from the FBI offices. She shares with Bosch her own tragedy from the war, her beloved brother Michael, who never returned home. She invites Bosch over to her place for dinner. She is cooking pasta. Their tastes are somewhat similar, especially the appreciation of the early 20th century painting, specifically the melancholy loneliness evoking Nighthawks. Dinner and wine are consumed. Bosch opens up about the dollmaker fiasco and how his enemies in the department made it seem like he was an outright murderer. They kiss and she invites him to stay. He does. Meanwhile, across the street, Lois and Clark are there, observing, again. As Bosch and Wish consummate their relationship, a tragedy ensues. Sharky, having escaped the, hall the halfway house, is off to roll some homosexuals again. He hooks one immediately, an older man who drives him to a spot near the Hollywood Bowl to make their transgression. When morning arrives, the afterglow of Bosch and Wish's physical coupling is shattered by a phone call from Jerry Edgar. Sharky is dead. His throat slit. Tension falls over the newly formed couple. Bosch's existential burdens are increased tenfold with his feelings of guilt over Sharky. 
At each queue, they begin to work on a hunch about the true intention of the robbery and search for Vietnamese names attached to the deposit box owners, given that three of the robbery suspects have ties to Vietnam, being Vietnam veterans. It is mentioned earlier that Meadows was transferred to Saigon following his time as a tunnel rat. Lots of shady things went down in Saigon, but this search is interrupted by the arrival of, of SAC Rourke, who is nonplussed to learn about the death of their only witness. Bosch drops all pretense with Rourke when he suggests to take the case from the LAPD, leading Bosch to posit the idea that there is a leak in the Bureau, a leak of critical information that led to Sharkey's death. Rourke is furious and fires back at Bosch for being a hypocrite, especially since they are fully aware that he is being tailed by IAD. Since this info came from Wish, a betrayed Bosch leaves in a huff and is tailed by Lewis and Clark. Bosch makes them and messes around with them for a bit and then heads to the INS where he tracks down the name of a Vietnamese immigrant just after the fall of Saigon, one Ngo Van Bin. Returning to his house in the Hollywood Hills, he searches the place for bugs. He finds one in the mouthpiece of his phone. Leaving the house through the back door, he manages to sneak around the perimeter of the property so that he can take them by surprise. Throwing the driver's side door open, he grabs them by both their neckties and hauls them bodily out of the car and chains them to a nearby palm tree with both their handcuffs. They spit curses at him, denying his accusations that they tapped his phone. This awkward encounter ends with Bosch pantsing Lewis. If it wasn't personal for the IAD agents to nail Bosch before, then it certainly has become now. From this point on, Irving's two explorers will be emotionally compromised when it comes to Harry Bosch. Bosch and Wish, however, press on. Despite the tension brewing between them, they meet with an old colleague of Wish's in the State Department, one Bob Ernst, who more as a favor to Eleanor than as a courtesy to the investigation, utilizes his resources to find more information on Bin. Turns out that Bin and another man named Win Tran were two of three Saigon police captains who may have operated a drug cartel. They were known as the Triad. It is pretty clear that Billy Meadows was one of his lieutenants. After the fall of Saigon in 75, Meadows, Bin, and Tran had special VIP service out of there and were renaturalized in America. Not only that, they managed to smuggle their fortune out of Vietnam as well. In diamonds. Something that could be easily stored in a safety deposit box. They have definitely stumbled upon something here, something juicier than veterans robbing banks, and this is soon reinforced when inside Eleanor's parking garage, a white car attempts to run them down. The hit-and-run fails, of course, but only just. Bosch and Wish find themselves under the scrutiny of the police and the FBI. Now, Lewis and Clark were not there to witness this vehicular altercation, as their charmless personas angered a parking lot attendant of the restaurant where Bosch and Wish had dined. There is another encounter with Pounds, however, that goes better this time, but Bosch and Wish have clearly stirred up a hornet's nest. And they decide to knock that nest down with a stick the next day. After spending the night together, Wish and Bosch attempt to track down Bin and Tran. Bin first. He owns an electronics store in Vermont just off of Wilshire Boulevard, and when they interview him about that, they may as well be talking to a brick wall. On the pretext of making a phone call, Bosch secretly inserts the bug from his own phone, seemingly planted by Lewis and Clark, into Bin's earpiece. Bosch reveals this to Eleanor once they are outside in the car. Though wary with the sudden wiretap going on, Wish agrees and they listen to the conversation. Through the pauses between clicks of the rotary phone, Bosch is able to gain some semblance of what is very clearly Wintran's phone number, or at least the area code. He runs it through dispatch, which determines it's a 714 area code in Orange County, and it belongs to a shopping muse called the Tan Pu Pogoda in Little Saigon. They speed off with Lewis and Clark on their tail. They make Tran in the Pogoda muse after some phone tag and risky observation. 
Tran is on his way out with a briefcase and a small entourage. Their surveillance acumen pays off further when they locate Tran's Mercedes and simply wait for him to drive away. They follow him whilst being trailed by Clark and Lewis into Beverly Hills, all the way down Wilshire Boulevard, reaching the terminus, Beverly Hills Lock and Storage, a large open foyer business occupying the first floor of a commercial office building. Tran, or Jimmy Bach as he is known, enters the building with his briefcase handcuffed to him. Bosch soon follows under the pretense of making himself a possible client with Beverly Hills Lock and Storage. One of the employees gives him the grand tour of the facilities, including the vault, and just as Tron emerges from it to exit. A glass booth antechamber separates the sales floor from the vault doors itself. It is a top-of-the-line security. Bosch and Wish learn from the owner, Mr. Avery, who Bosch reveals himself as a police officer to, that an alarm did go off recently, but it was disabled last night as a false alarm. Knowing the M.O. of the Delgado, Franklin, and the crew, the alarm going off accidentally is all part of the operation. They are making their way into the vault as they speak. Across the street, in a municipal parking garage, Rourke is waiting with the full team, buying in with Bosch and wish that this is happening. Tactics are employed, units are moved around. Avery is told to leave and he heads out for a bite to eat nearby. But on the way over, he is accosted by Lewis and Clark, who compel him to tell him what's happening. To Lois and Clark, it means little to them that Bosch and the FBI are about to nab a gang of vault breakers, because they determine from Avery's anxiety and their own seething hatred of Bosch that Bosch is standing by and letting the robbers get away. They try calling Irving, aware that they could be jeopardizing a federal operation, but he is unreachable. With their desire to destroy Bosch and their fear of Irving driving them, they pull the trigger. As Eleanor and Bosch observe the lock-in storage from their car in the parking garage, Lewis and Clark escort a panicking Avery to the lock-in storage. At the same time, Bosch has just read in William Meadows' file, the very one that was sitting on his desk at the bureau that has been brought to the site, that Meadows' commanding officer in Saigon was a John Rourke, the very man who has placed a cordon around the area with the intention of capturing the crew that Meadows once belonged to. But this revolution is over, turned when he notices Clark and Lewis bringing Avery into the lock and storage. Bosch races through the garage and across the street, but Lewis, Clark, and Avery are already inside the antechamber. Avery opens the vault door, and Bosch watches from the glass as automatic weapon fire flares from the darkness. Lewis is killed instantly, and Clark is shot through the throat, and barely alive falls on top of Avery. Bosch rushes into the antechamber, into the chaos, and fires into the vault. It's Franklin and Delgado, all right, and they strafe fire across the vault floor to their entry hole. Delgado disappears, but Bosch is certain he has tagged Franklin. Eleanor arrives with her backup team, surveying the carnage. Bosch, meanwhile, faces his fears and flashbacks and drops into the hole. Clearly triggered, he manages to track down Franklin, but it's no quick or easy task as he uses maneuvers and tactics he learned in the Viet Cong tunnels during the war. Franklin is found dead, but Delgado is still on the run. Making his way through the darkness, he tracks down Delgado, but takes a bullet in the shoulder. Before he can muster his resolve to pursue Delgado, shots are fired. Delgado is dead. John Rourke emerges, a veritable talking villain trope if there ever was one. As Meadows' commanding officer in Saigon, he engaged in all sorts of criminal enterprise with the triad. He aims to finish Bosch, but before our hero dies of shock, Rourke is gunned down by Eleanor Wish, and by this time, Bosch has passed out. All is not said and done, however. Bosch is in the hospital recovering from his wound, where he is visited by Deputy Chief Irving. Irving is real with Bosch, letting him know he admires his acumen as an investigator, but his refusal to play in the system makes them enemies. He is not part of the family. 
We learn that Avery and Clark survived the fusillade at the lock and safe, only Clark is on life support in a coma. He soon passes. Wish visits Bosch and tells him that she is leaving the Bureau, and him. Despite orders, Irving wants things to blow over, Bosch manages to sneak out of the hospital. At his house, he comes to the conclusion that it wasn't IAD who placed the bug in his phone, which also makes him wonder who was the informer that let Rourke know about Sharky. Rourke himself? Bosch confronts Eleanor at the Bureau. Sharky was killed probably by Rourke and Eleanor pl placed the bug in his phone. Bosch reveals that he could not find Eleanor's brother on the memorial. And since this is a replication of the exact one in Washington, D.C., it is clear that her brother did not die in Vietnam. Eleanor reveals that she was working with Rourke, but not the way that a very betrayed Bosch suspects. It is about her brother, Michael, who also worked in Saigon with Rourke and Meadows, but her brother didn't die in Vietnam. No, he died in the United States of a drug overdose, quote unquote, courtesy of Rourke. Eleanor turns herself in. She gets a commuted sentence. Eleanor, feeling that justice is done, her brother revenged, Eleanor turns herself in. She gets a commuted sentence. No one attends Rourke's funeral. Bosch returns to his cantilever house overlooking the Hollywood Hills and finds an envelope waiting for him. It's a small print of Nighthawks. Bosch looks ahead, leaving the dark tunnels of Nam in the past. All right. Nice work there, Josh, with that summary. Yeah, that was tight. Uh, I have to say, like, um, I, w I don't want to use the word convoluted for that story, because I think uh -huh. if you, as we pull it apart, it's actually very straightforward, like the plotting of, of yeah. that particular tale. And I think it's one of the, probably one of the best plotted stories we've read probably so far uh, in terms of like how complex it is. It was a fun challenge. Anyway, the pipes, which we're going to do now, is our scoring system. We look at principles. We look at the investigation. Uh, we look at perpetrators. We look at the environment. And then we look at the secondary players or the supporting cast. And we give each of these components a mark out of five, which gives us an index of 25 that we use to score the books. And it really just informs our overall opinion. It's, uh, it's a fun way for us to go through the categories. And we cover most of the basis of each of the texts that we study. Of course, if you've been listening to Lighten the Pipes since its inception, or if you're just a late listener to the show you'll already know that because we do it every time but um it never loses its luster does it josh explaining the scoring never. system <laughs> never does. always no always does right let's let's start with perfect as, as a teacher you're probably used to doing that so uh yeah repetition repetition yeah. let's start with uh, the principles then we've got uh, hieronymus bosch and maybe other characters but but let's start with this mm -hmm. detective now I, I guess you know it, it's important recognizing the, the, the longevity and the success of the series that we issue the caveat that, you know, we're only judging this book on its first appearance. And yes. regardless of what we've seen of film or what we've seen of the Bosch series or what people have said or other novels have portrayed, we're just dealing with the Black Echo here, folks, and the way the character first appeared when the book was published in 92. So... What was your impression of Bosch, either in the book or as a character on page? I mean, give me your score for Principal or run me down through how you felt about this detective, because he's an interesting guy. My take is this. If Philip Marlowe went to war and, you know, had the PTSD that he did and 
And he's always been sort of a crusading kind of detective in his way. That's why he left the LAPD. And mm-hmm. That's why he left the DA's office and became a detective. Well, Bosch yeah, decided to yeah. stay with the LAPD, probably because the money wasn't there for private detectives anymore. And he was, you know, that was just the job that he could take. And he was able to kind of exercise his demons out on the criminals and whatnot. So I think like Bosch is a similar character to Marlowe. So already I identified with that character, with that type and stuff like that. But I also find that he's also very different from Marlowe in other ways, too. So let's talk about those differences, Josh, because we know from our series on Marlowe, we know the sorts of things. Now, I mean, I think Bosch is for, I mean, it's, it's, it's a silly point. Maybe it's a, it's a minor point perhaps, but I think Bosch is, is, is less of a drinker. He's more of a smoker, yes. but he's less of a he's drinker. A smoker. Yes. Less yeah. of a drinker. More. So unlike Marlowe, he's a smoker. Unlike, uh, because Marlo doesn't really smoke much. He drank more in, in, in the book. Yeah, I mean, he does He does smoke a bit, but he's he's not a big smoker. It's almost like just an affectation yeah. almost for, for Marlo. But for Bosch, like, it's like, you know, that's his... Oh, it's that's habitual. That's his fix. Yeah. That's his fix, yeah. you know? Like, that's what he needs yeah. to do. That's how he does his brooding. That's how he does his thinking. That's how he breaks down. It's sucking mm-hmm. back on the cigarette and reducing it to ash, right? And yeah, kind yeah. of, you know, destroying his lungs at the same time. But, you know... Uh-huh. but. There's this kind of like this self-destructive measure to him that he has. Now, I find that as a character, he's much more sensitive than Philip Marlowe as an individual. I think he's more respectful of women in particular um, than Marlowe was. Uh, but I mean, that's also has to do with the writing of the time, of course. Yeah, but yeah. I always found that like uh, he's very, he's, he could be, even though he has a tough guy exterior, he can be emotionally wounded. And um, But he can also mm-hmm. can also close those walls too and also lash out in his own ways or, or you know, you know, in, in that in those circumstances, and he does have a sense of righteousness to him, like Marlowe, like he wants to do good and see people, you know, like there's a chivalry to him in his own way. He's, but at the same time, um, he also has no time for incompetence and uh, as well. Yeah, he doesn't suffer fools at all. That's he one does thing. Not. In this book, at least, he doesn't tend to suffer fools. He no. suffers the ones that are above him until he can work them out. But he I doesn't like suffer. He doesn't suffer the likes of Lewis and Clark um, from the IAD. And you're right, he is he is more respectful of women, but I think that's part to context and part to Connolly's wishes to kind of evolve the character of Marlowe a little bit, you know? Yes, um, absolutely. He he has that liberation that, you know, Chandler didn't when he was writing in the 30s and 40s. Um, that, that sort of progression, that uh, positive view, I suppose we could say. You know, and the sensitive I, thing I bring out too is his love of art <clears throat> and uh, his own mm-hmm. emotional, yeah, jazz, his own yeah. emotion, the jazz. But I think that also connects to like his emotional state too, like you know PTSD from the Vietnam War, being in those tunnels and whatnot, all the shit that he saw there and coming back from, and then being treated like every other Vietnam veteran as being part of something that you shouldn't have been and being hated and stuff like that. So he becomes mm-hmm, a cop, mm-hmm. and even as a cop, he's still a loner and he's basically a pariah in the community because he's being, to quote the wire, he's being good police. But good police means yeah. you're not part of the family. You're not part of the, of the tribe. That's right. You're, yep. you're not juking the stats. You're not just, you know, oh, I got a homicide case. Oh, well, I can resolve that very, very quickly and get it done. Despite the yeah. fact that some that we easily miss things that doesn't make a difference as long as you got the case closed and that's it, right? You got, you turn red to black, essentially. Um, mm. And um, this is where, you know, I, I, I see where he's kind of the um, outlier in the terms of what the yeah, police has become. Absolutely. And that is very much like a Vietnam veteran. And even that, and that's very similar to Marlowe. He was being an outlier. But I like how uh, Connolly brings him into this context for the night for the 1990s mm-hmm. and onwards as someone post-Vietnam in a, in a post in a world. Because if you look at, uh, the, at, you know, the Marlowe books were written in the 40s, you know, 
during the first second world war and after the second world war america was a very different place jingoism was big it was all about you know the the commies are out there the immigrants are out there the, the mob is out there everyone is you know out to out to get everybody and the whole idea is to have the illusion of a happy home right to have a happy home and live your life and and that's fine vietnam war comes around and tears down all the social structures you have like the political upheaval that occurred, the loss of faith in American government and to the infrastructure and all this sort of stuff. And all of that to me is like, you know, Bosch carries that with him uh, in his like outsider status. On this point of him being an outsider, I don't think he's introduced in any way different to Rebus, for example. Rebus is very quickly in Knots and Crosses uh, identified for the audience as an outsider and in a very yeah. kind of similar fashion. I mean, he's had SAS background. It's It's a bit different, but... Um, both both men are suffering from you know PTSD. Rebus more more significantly, or at least it's more significantly presented in that story. But I think Ian Rankin himself has said that if he had his time back, he would not have gone. Kind of he didn't he didn't see this as a character that he was going to you know necessarily make a series about, and so he put a lot of it quickly and hard on that page there. Whereas um, there's a bit more subtle texture, I think, to the way that. Connolly's character demonstrates his PTSD. You know, there's no like big flashback episodes in this book the way that there was in Knots and Crosses, perhaps. But just keeping with this idea of outlier, I mean, he is an outlier, and and that's fine. But you know, some of his affectations, some of the demons that that he 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 exercises um, through the insomnia or through the jazz or through whatever these things are, I I don't know that I don't know that the the cigarettes are really Bosch's own idiosyncrasy. I mean, cigarettes are big. Smoke is a big part of the genre. And it's it's continued from the noir feel, you know, the shadowy noir feel we get from the 40s that you're mentioning, the 50s and so on. But at this time, at this time in the early 90s, I... Smoking's almost a bit counterculture. I mean, the health yes. the health warnings are out there. A lot of establishments are starting to go non-smoking, and there are references in this book to like opening the windows and him kind of having a grump on when he's not allowed to smoke or when you know. Yes, I, I find that part is the more affectatious part than maybe the smoking itself. It's how he responds yes. to the changes in the environment around him. Yeah, it could be seen as self-destructive in its own way, and that's understandable <laughs> given you know his emotional state and whatnot. But at the same time, it's also sort of counterculture. It's like a rebellion. It's, it's also in a way of him saying "f you." Yeah, in its own way to society, the rules don't have like to apply to him. Yeah. Mm-hmm. E- exactly. There's a form of, of there's a bit of a rebellion in it, despite the self-destructive aspect. Yeah, yeah. All right. I mean, he does have his demons, like we're saying. Um, I'm not so sure how in this first novel, though we're getting the Vietnam War and we're getting the the tunneling stuff, you know, the the tunnel rats and whatnot, while we're getting that in the story, I'm not so sure how much of that propels the characterization. It does propel the story. And structurally, when we talk about investigation, I do like how we start in the tunnels plot and we end in the tunnel but we also I think it's have more a about comradeship okay right you, so you sense the, a friendship the, do you that yeah well the camaraderie that he had you know working in like, even though he was probably the closest friends with billy meadows he was still in the tunnels with him and whatnot and they shared the depth of a colleague there like a, a, yeah, of his fellow yeah. soldier there and whatnot and all the other shit that they saw so connecting you know Bringing so the scene Meadows' body brings everything back for him and whatnot, right? Mm-hmm. And it mm-hmm. connects to it connects all that for him. So I see the camaraderie is there, and he wants to see him 
vindicated in his own way, or at least find out what's happening. So the Vietnam War, combined with the the insomnia and other things, I don't know. To me, it's a natural progression. It, it seems like it's um, mm. part of the story and the themes of the story okay. in some way. Now we do have the backstory about you know the doll maker case where he shot. The, yeah, the yeah. he shot the, uh, the the accused suspect right, and there's a whole mm-hmm. bunch of bullshit behind that. Um, mm-hmm. Well, that's the reason he it, works Hollywood Division instead of burglary homicide, right? Because exactly. he's been demoted. But the problem right? is he's been demoted. But that kind of attitude that he had about you know going in and no questions asked and and stuff like that that's a that's someone who I think is used to the violence and used to war and everything so I think that yeah, what happened yeah. is experiences in Vietnam would, would definitely in terms of writing would make sense to me as a reader as to why he might have acted that way you know like he probably mm-hmm. saw some shit and saw some you know where you can he saw some terrible stuff there probably and it's, and oh, yeah. you know he wanted to make sure those things have happened i mean everyone knows about yeah. the Eli massacre and and stuff like that of I course mean, yeah so he he's he's very uh, misanthrope in that way where he doesn't have a lot of trust in his fellow man. No, but at the same time, he's not really that gun-wielding detective that we've seen other places. He doesn't really brandish the, the gun often. No, he doesn't. So it had to be a certain situation that triggered that, right? And I think it was yeah, the death of yeah. those women in particular. Yeah, and yeah. I think that brought out the person, the fact that, like, you know, his mother died when he was young. Yes, and the way course, that she yeah. died and all this sort of stuff and the connection The life that, that she led, yeah. The life that she led, exactly. So, mm-hmm. you know, those things trigger you as well. Not just the Vietnam War, but Vietnam War, PTSD, plus what happened to his mother, his own childhood, the upbringing. A poor guy being probably in, living in foster homes just like Sharky was. And then yeah. all of a sudden, you know, he's a young man and then he's in the Vietnam War, which, which is the case of a lot of young people at the time who didn't have any places to go foster kids poor poor teen like you know poor young men you know they had no other choice they, they weren't educated they weren't going to university or something so they had to yeah. go to war right they didn't have their yeah. families protecting them so yeah it's in those subtleties that i think that the character is most interesting like the reason he's sympathetic towards sharky i think is exactly why he why, what you're saying um look at what his mom does it's not much different to what Bosch's mom did you know um yes. and I like the the connection there. That, that Anyway, we'll get into that. But I'd like to share something with you as maybe a, a closing point on the principle here that comes from Ian Rankin speaking about the Bosch character. In his introduction to my edition, anyway, um, Rankin states that Bosch is fully formed in this first book and Connolly completely avoids the pitfalls of first novelitis. That's my word, not not uh, not Rankin's. Okay. By, ma- by managing somehow to make us feel like we'd already known Bosch. And here's what Rankin says. And I quote, if you told me that we were already four or five books into the series, I'd probably have believed you. Connolly draws out his biography, his biography of Bosch, that's what he's talking about, or uh, yeah, his biography of Bosch, without the need for information dumps or long-winded explanations. Now, the sentiment there is that you pick up the Black Echo, you don't feel like you're reading a first novel. You feel like you're reading a character no. that's already been established, whereas Rankin has admitted himself that with Rebus, and I'm sure some other authors would say the same, who went on Origin to series, story. Origin story can be really heavy in the first book because you want to just get it there, whereas this seems to be quieter and subtler. And I would agree with part of that. But I do wonder, Josh, how much do you agree that Bosch exists immediately on the page and we do feel like we know him and thus can care about him? Or maybe another way of asking the question, do like how effective do you think Connolly is in characterizing him from the very start I would say he's about more than halfway effective for me uh, defining him 
I was like to me when he came on the page, I was expecting you know the, de- the typical type of detective trope that I'm used to. So yeah. I could identify him yeah. that way, and I'm like, okay, well maybe we'll just gradually they'll reveal more about his path as it goes along. I know he has some connection to Vietnam War, so that makes things interesting to me. So we're going to probably talk about the Vietnam War. That's a very interesting angle to explain. It explains why he's a bit of a pariah already to me. So very yeah, slowly, yeah. it kind of unravels, like it kind of unravels, and then you kind of put the pieces together. But I find that I'm not straining to put the pieces together. It's just like, it's clicking for right, me with okay, each okay. little revelation, right? And each encounter right. that he has with people. You learn about Bosch, how he deals with Pound. You learn about Bosch, about how, or or you learn about what people think about Bosch when you hear about like Irving or Lewis and Clark talk about him. Like, this guy must be some kind of, he has Lewis and Clark so angry all the time. Like, this is someone uh-huh, who they're yeah. assigned to bring down. But it's not just an assignment for them. Like, it's personal. It's a passion. And it's a passion. So, like, they must really hate him. So, what did he do? You know, in and, and that sort of sense, right? So, to me, there's, there's different encounters through characters, through different slow revelations throughout the, throughout the novel. I still feel it's a first novel to me. I'm, I'm personally getting introduced to, to, to this world. So I feel that I'm learning about the character Bosch. I don't think he's fully formed on page one, but he could be almost fully formed by the end of the first book, in my opinion. Sometimes yeah. it takes more than one book to do that, but... It does, yeah. I slightly disagree with Rankin, but I see where he's coming from. I just didn't mm-hmm. feel it myself. I had yeah, learn, I, didn't, I, still had I didn't feel it. Yeah. I didn't feel it myself either, dude. Um, I, I certainly felt like I was happy to watch him develop for me, but I didn't feel as I stepped into this book that the character was already complex and already there for me to, to kind of study. I think that... Yeah, I mean, you know, I don't really disagree with that, uh, the whole idea. Like, mm-hmm. now, now that I think about what he's saying there is it's like, that to me isn't really exciting in terms of reading the book. Like, I don't want to have like, I, I, don't, I don't want to turn on like, you know, Law and Order episode two from season 15 and just start watching the show and get into the, and, and already see a character there. Like I want to care about this character. You know, I, I don't want to have to uh, just go along with it and not be emotionally invested. Right. And so I, I think that to me is a reductive way of tr- learning a character. I think yeah. you have to have, you don't have to be fully formed, but, and you don't have to be, you know, 100% uh, an enigma, but somewhere in between is perfect to me. Yeah. And perhaps I'm perhaps I'm misquoting or not misquoting, but maybe maybe we're not giving Rankin's words really the treatment they, that that he was intending. I see what I think, he's saying. I think yeah, I think I know what he's saying as well. That you know this character is fully formed now and he's ready to go. There's not a lot of redevelopment necessary. And the compliment to Connolly is that you've really thought well about this guy, maybe having a longer life than I did when I created my character. You know, um, yes. you've got it all worked out, and he feels full, but. I'm still not sure how much of that I agree with, because like you say, it's a first novel. And, you know, the second part, I definitely do agree with. I appreciated how we didn't get too many info drops about, you know, as he sat back in his chair, Hieronymus Bosch thought about his days in Vietnam. He was really a first infantry division soldier, a specialized man at, you know, shooting yeah. out like rats that in the tunnels. We didn't in, get that bullshit. You know? Like we that sequence get- in... Um- in the Silver Pigs, when they describe uh, Falco's uh, time in, in, time in, in England, Britannia. like yeah. in Britannia, yeah, like in the la- in the in, like in two pages about the the silver and stuff, and yeah, yeah. and the massacres like and stuff like that, that just kind of like you know are just dumped on you right away to say, oh, okay, well that explains this character then, without any sort yeah. of like emotional investment, it's like, oh, okay, that's right, and that's the difference between 
dramatic presentation or dramatic characterization and expository. Like we're not getting that info dump that you might get here. We're getting it through what characters say and what characters do. And we hear from Harry about, you know, snippets of conversation tells us that as the book evolves, we get presentation of action that shares bits about his background. We're not getting big chunks of information drop. And I do agree with Rankin that that really does help iron out a soft and um, kind of equally balanced biography so you're not getting too much chunks whereas yeah I think the Lindsay Davis text gives us here's a big chunk that you need to know about uh, Marcus Didius Falco like let me tell it to you in a big you know sequence of 15 pages and here's here's a bit of this you know it is spread out and it's done through dramatic presentation not through that expository descriptive writing yeah a big chunk chunk. so what you brought to my mind uh, so, so what um, what score did you go for for him? I really enjoyed Bosch as a character, and I liked learning about. I liked knowing, I like getting to know him throughout the tale. Uh, just as I mentioned, through people that he met, experiences that mm-hmm. he had, and how it's laid out in the story. And honestly, like probably one of my favorite principles so far. I gave him four wow. and a half. Nice, nice. I was a full point below you. I went for three and a half. Uh, I didn't. Uh, not like him. I certainly didn't not like him, but I didn't think that some of these things, the jazz, the cigarettes, the grumpiness, the PTSD, I didn't think I was reading something that, um, that I hadn't necessarily seen before. And I did feel that there was a lot of Marlowe worshiping going on here with the, Mm -hmm. the pros and kind of the way that we're, we're meant to see him maybe as a more modern version of that, but which is evident in his own life going through the biography and talking about the influence of Chandler. So I see where you're coming from. And I, I just felt like there wasn't really that much variety in this detective. But again, a three and a half is a good score. Um, it's it, it's just where I'm going to stop because I don't know how the character evolves in the further book. So I'm hedging yes. on the, I feel it's a conservative vote. I'm, I feel more like a four, but I'm going to go three and a half because I do feel like for a first novel, I would like to have go seen a little instinct, bit. Man. Yeah, I'm going gut because I'd like to have seen a couple of little differences, you know. Now, let me say, first of all, and to all of our listeners, that I have never served in the armed forces. I don't have an appreciation of the horrors of fight. And I, don't, I don't know that. I'm very privileged. And so I can't talk, I can't talk to Bosch's backstory, and I can't speak to it in the way that some other readers might. And the, the PTSD for me in the book, it, though it is a, you know, it's a part of the story, it remains in the book a fictionalized thing. I think that if I had experiences like some in my family did of the armed forces, I think that that would speak much more strongly to me as a characterizing potion. But as a reader, I didn't think it was as interesting as you might have, you know? So, yeah. Um, and I'm someone who's very interested. I'm acknowledging I'm, that bias. I, I'm interested yeah. in history. So mm-hmm. I know a lot about the Vietnam War and, and, and whatnot. And I, I've seen, you know, I dealt with, I've read other characters who've dealt with similar circumstances and whatnot and, and seen that in other media. So I, that to me just connected me instantly with him. But I do say like, yeah, I did enjoy the Chandler, the, the feeling of Chandler that I had through the, through the reading. So that would mm-hmm. definitely have influenced my liking of the Bosch, the character. But yeah, I also yeah, just totally. like the moments of like, there's like nice little moments too, like just how, t- how he tries to find Sharky a good place, you know, just, you know, and, and how he sympathizes with Sharky, given their similar situations with their mothers and, and the lifestyle that, you know, that, yeah, like that's, yeah. that, that's where like Bosch could have ended up if the Vietnam War didn't come, which is really interesting, you know, just based on his background, right? A foster kid and, and stuff like that. And it's very possible he could have ended up, he could have ended up that way. Um, 
But what and makes then, him unique, Josh? Like, give me a scene from the book, okay, where you feel like, yeah, that's something that Marlowe wouldn't have done. That's something that Holmes wouldn't have done. That's something like what makes what makes him in your eyes an, a, a unique original character? Because this is this is where I'm going three and a half instead of your four and a half. Like, well, give me a scene where you see him doing a. Bosch. I think since the beginning of I think the beginning of time. I think all art has been repli- like look at the Greek tragedies, look at Shakespeare. I mean, we these stories, these archetypes exist throughout time, and we just have to make our own connections to these archetypes. And I yeah, just found it in terms enough. of how the character was written. That I think the skill in which the character was written, how he was revealed to me, he wasn't kind of thrown in my face. Like I found that it was very subtle how Connolly did it, and that made me connect to the character on an emotional level. So okay. I, I can't argue or I can't really point out, you know, to what makes him stand out as like Bosch compared to Marlowe or whatever yeah. like that. I just know I really enjoyed the character and I found him really interesting. Now, if I were to be conservative, I would probably give him a four. But because I enjoyed the character so much and I enjoyed the novel so much, which I'm kind of giving away here, I feel that I'm kind of at a, I think four and a half, I think is going to be my Your sticking uh, point. My sticking point. Exactly. All right, Chief. Well, let's talk investigation. Now, our investigation, Mark, listeners, uh, doesn't just involve sort of the plot or, or the crime or the investigation itself, but also sort of the way we, we like the writer's style and anything unique within that. So we've got a bit a bit of art and craft brought in here to the plot itself. But yeah, let, I mean, I've already said it. Structurally, I really like this book. I like how the character and the action start in a tunnel. If you think Bosch's history is as a tunnel rat and he's ending the story as a tunnel rat, kind of. I think that's interesting. I like structurally how, you know, Meadows, the death of Meadows picks us up there at the beginning in a tunnel of sorts, up at the Mulholland Dam, and then how at the end we're in a tunnel. So I I do like what he's doing there. The thematic and and the book ending. I think that's really good stuff and it's compelling. And okay, you could could argue, well, that's just kind of easy to plan out. And I would say, so? That doesn't mean it's not good. You know what I mean? No, exactly. that's clever. I like it. I was never bored complex, with the story. but not convoluted. Yeah. Complex, but not convoluted. Uh, I was never bored with the story, Josh. That is definitely for sure. Bosch, like, uh, he, he runs through LA very casually. And I always felt like when I was traveling with Chandler, who I guess is our closest comparator, which is why we're ma- making mention to him so much. I always felt like when I was traveling with Chandler's Marlowe, I was getting a sense of that character's feelings for the city more. Whereas, and maybe that was through the descriptive style. Maybe that was through the figurative language that Marlowe decorated his story with. He's painting the picture of LA. Yeah. Yeah. Here, I just feel like Bosch is a cop in LA. And I, I don't really feel like as an investigator, he's investigating the city. I feel like he's just no. on the plot. And that's okay. He's, that's okay. Yeah, he's on the case. Exactly. And I, I think he's that's just okay. so indifferent. Yeah. I think he's, I think in the way, like it goes into that misanthropic thing uh, that, that in terms of, you know, like he just has no faith in people anymore. He doesn't suffer fools. And uh, while Marlowe kind of went through, look at LA and looked at what it had become. And, you know, there's a lot of cynicism and stuff like that where, Marlowe still had kind of hope in his own way, or he had an ideal of what things should be like. And Bosch, mm-hmm. to me, is just broken. He's, bro- you know what I mean? He just casually walks through because that's his job. That's what he does. And he finds what pleasures he can in life when he can. But in terms of like th- describing what LA is like, I just feel that he's going, he's just going through the motions and he knows LA is a shithole now. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. that's it. That's okay. all that matters. Right. And, and that's, a, it's a post- Marlowe kind of a Los Angeles where the hope is gone. It's been taken over by politics, by crime, by Hollywood, 
nothing everything is superficial everyone is doing dark stuff under the surface still it's the same hollywood but now people are just totally just like acceptance of it now and this is the mire that we live in you know so yeah and we we can we can touch maybe a bit more on this when we get to the environs i wasn't sorry i wasn't trying to bring us down that space too no, much no that's okay no problem i did, i just i guess what i was trying to say is that as a detective in los angeles uh, there's nothing unique there about the way he operates he doesn't use the city to you know to to do things either a bit different to the way i think a cop might do something in atlanta or fucking portland right. maine or oregon or whatever yeah. you know like it, it is what it is but you know i did like though and i guess this is something that we're getting with the bosch universe and certainly it seems to be from what I hear of it, that this investigation, right, which revolves around morally ambiguous law enforcement officials, is is, is just what we're going to get, right? Like, it's as much investigating the force as it is the, the case. And you're always going to yes. be dealing, like, like Marlo did, you're always going to be dealing with people who kind of put the sandpaper in front of you as you're trying to go smooth on the road or, you know, throw yeah, up the, you're dealing the speed with the bumps. Ins- with the institution, the, the system. That's right, yeah. Because you're not part of it and you refuse to be part of the family, so you're always going to work against the family. I mean, I, I like the, the Vietnam tie-in, uh, the skill of the tunnel rats. I like the fact that there are clever little things like Wish, for example, not wanting to hypnotize Sharky because at the time we're not quite sure why, but we know later because she doesn't want him to potentially give her away as a as he was a witness to Meadows going in, you know. Um, I thought that the, there was enough balance of red herring and actual leads. Um, the relationships in the story were, I, I felt, necessary. I didn't feel there was much egregious or kind of unnecessary effluvium in here, you know. One thing I was really surprised at, too, was, like, I thought there'd be kind of just, like, at the end of the story, sort of, like, or in midway through the story, there'd be sort of, like, that sort of, like, uh, that final, you know, get-together between Wish and Bosch. Like, I know it was building towards that in its own way, but it It happened so early in the narrative. And for a while, you kind of buy that this guy is just finding solace in this woman and maybe even vice versa in their own way. Mm -hmm. So I was surprised we're getting kind of, like, a bit of a love story here. Like, it was very kind of, like, and what's interesting, too, is that, like, when they subscribe, like, you know, the love scene, so to speak, it's very subtle. It's very sort of, like, almost, like, they don't want to show the intimacy. They all... Connolly is concerned about is the story so there's no sort of like cheesecake I, I suppose you know in here <laughs> yeah. that it's just part of yeah. it's just part of the of the life you know what I mean and yeah um, I think yeah. that they did that very well and then how it ties in uh, now we're going back to noir troops though and this is the thing and this I think to me we're, we're, we could be contentious about how you feel about the story itself you could look at Eleanor Wish as a, a kind of a reinvention of like the, the femme fatale in, yeah, in totally. its own way. You could, you could. Yeah. But it's a sympathetic femme fatale as well. And there's reasons why that connects back to the backstory with uh, with it. So you don't end up like disliking her in the end, like you do with a lot of femme fatales, for example, in Chandler, uh, who are pretty much as terrible human beings. Um, yeah. I mean, look Carmen at Carmen um, Sternwood, yeah. Carmen Sternwood or Farewell, My Lovely, uh, what's her name? Um, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Grail, right? So. Yeah, 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 totally. Yeah, totally. Well, I, I mean, I like the investigation. Like I said, I was never bored. I I agree with what you said, Josh. I mean, you laid it out after you, we mentioned or you, you presented your summary there. You laid it out nicely when you said that it was tight, but it, it was complex, but not convoluted. I think that it's clear to see 
that Connolly has structured this book in a way that allows for the investigation to be followed and to be enjoyed. I was I was never bored and I never felt like I was getting something that I didn't necessarily need. I did, however, yes. think that there were maybe a few departmental or agency scenes where I was getting, okay, these guys don't like each other. That might have been a bit of stuffing, you know, that mm-hmm. I felt was padded in there and I didn't necessarily want that or I felt myself dragging a little bit through some of those. By the time you meet Rourke for the third time, you're like, okay, he doesn't fucking like him. I get it. Oh, another Lewis and Clark scene. Here they are. Like, yeah. But, you know, you then... You probably but, cut out one Lewis and Clark scene. Yeah. But then you get yeah. that payoff. It's almost like... You do. Tra- exactly what I like was going to say. Tragedy, exactly you know, it's like right. a tragedy comic kind of payoff in a way because yeah. you hate Lewis and Clark, but you feel so bad for them because they're about mm-hmm. to walk into a shit storm and yeah. they do. And Connolly is merciless. Like, he totally is, like, yeah. Absolutely merciless. Like the uh, Lewis gets taken out instantly. So yeah. he doesn't suffer very much. No. Uh, but Clark, Clark, you know, does. he ends up, yeah, he's stuck on the, on life support and then until he's not right. And mm-hmm. yeah, like it's just something else. Right. And, uh, mm-hmm. yeah. But what I liked about it is that it's another example of like the characters driving. So, so Connolly sets this narrative straightforward, this through line. Okay. We're going to find out who killed Belly Meadows. We're going to find out when the next robbery is going to happen. We're going to stop them. And this is going to be the resolution to the story. That's basically it. Right. That's where we're going with this. But all of a sudden, uh, we're also showing how in this world that's, that Connolly's created, in this, sto- in this through line that he's created, the characters drive how the story goes. Like, I just yeah. love the idea that the hatred that Lewis and Clark had for um, Bosch ends up to them blowing the vault and leading yeah. to their deaths. Yeah. But yeah. it also leads to the climax of the story, which, in fact, uh, you know, exposes Rourke and everything. So... Mm-hmm. All of that ties ties together, and I thought does, that was yeah. done beautifully yeah. in the narrative. The wire tapping or the phone tapping, yeah, it's all, it's all there. Yeah. Um, and, and that's part of the plotting of the story. I think it's really, really well done. It's a solid mark for me. I went for a four here with the investigation. Hedging I again conservatively. Hedging again conservatively, but I went for a four. Yeah, okay, cool. I went, I, went, um, I went for a four. I was thinking four and a half, but I did find that, like, in his writing, I found that, like, the writing wasn't as strong as Chandler. Chandler had some great, like, poetics in his stuff. And yeah, I, oh, yeah. yeah. I, I find that Connolly does have a muscular feel to his writing. Like, he's very mm-hmm. straightforward when he writes, but even... Even like the simple, de- you know, declarations that he makes in uh, conversation or simply like in his paragraphs of description, I find that he packs a lot of detail into this in, in simplicity, and I find that really good about his writing. But um, I just found also too that there was a lot of tropes from detective novels, like the idea of Eleanor Wish being kind of like a, a femme fatale in the end, having that mm-hmm. like protracted kind of like prologue almost like an anti-climax in a way after the sequence right like yeah that's well, the, you info have the climax, drop, isn't it that's the info, the info drop. drop like connelly is not together yeah he does use info drop just not for bosch's characterization yeah which is good i mean that's good because you know marlo had his fucking info drops too didn't he right at the end yeah. of the cases and stuff all right well and it's also to me too, I felt that he's setting up more novels too. I ha- I couldn't feel that. Imp- I could felt yeah. that impression that even then, like the story was the case was over. But he's still writing about the story, talking about Eleanor Wish and leading up to that. Like to me, why are you setting up this denouement and giving these like d- dangling threads if you're not telling another story? Mm-hmm. And I felt the artifice totally. was present there that he wants to write more stories. But you can also tell from the beginning. I think what Rankin is saying is that he has planned this out more so than probably Rankin did for his first novel. So Yeah, absolutely. Well, Josh, just before we leave investigation, um, any favorite scenes that you'd like listeners to maybe just uh, 
Keep in mind, the as vault they, scene. The, I think that the, the whole buildup in the in the vault sequence is fantastic. Meeting Avery, going into the vault and seeing the case going. Lewis and Clark watching, uh, and then the whole like the the vault execution. I found Rourke's. I found that the end that the sequence like with the showdown with Rourke, Rourke becoming a talking villain. I wasn't a fan yeah. of that. No, I wasn't. That's either. that's, that's exactly what I said. Cool. Talking head. Yeah, he was just a talking yeah. trope, wasn't he? He he definitely was. But I mean, Rankin um, did the same thing. He did the same thing. I found like the eye opening. Like I, I think the sequence. Oh, I'm just trying to think of a sequence in particular. I like when him and Wish were walking around the Vietnam Memorial, like the first time they do yeah. it. Uh, Sharky's Sharky death was was pretty Sharky's, noticeable. Well, Sharky's death was that was a terrifying scene. I knew something was mm-hmm. terribly going to happen, so the dread that I felt there was something else. Uh, the opening was really good. I just like all the interactions with all the different people in, in, in L.A. as well. And a lot uh, of vignettes. We get a lot of vignettes. Maybe not a lot, but we get a half dozen vignettes, like when Sharky goes to uh, to case the guy's home, right, With uh, that he picks up at the 7-Eleven. That yes, was, that was yes. interesting. When they're beating like, up the homosexuals, yeah. Yeah. No, I don't. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's 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 totally true. There's like I don't know. I, I felt like besides maybe like maybe some extra scenes with like Loris and Clark with uh, Irving that could have probably been dialed back a bit and whatnot. I found that there wasn't a lot of filler in this book, and I just I just enjoyed the flow of, of the narratives. And that's saying really something because it's a big book. Yeah, but you got to agree with me though. Like the vault set piece up, up until you know yeah, the confrontation with Rourke, that was just well plotted stuff right there and where it led to. And I thought that was really good. Um, yeah. And even yeah. the transportative writing where we're learning about Bin and Tran and how the ex-Vietnamese police yes. officials get their money, like that, that even though it was short, it, it did stick in my mind. There was a lot of flavor to that stuff. And I think um, Connolly deserves some credit there because yeah. he's he's writing about his history that he clearly has researched really, really well, you know? Yeah. Now, this kind of goes into the supporting cast a bit, but I think it's part of the writing. What did you think of the writing of characters besides Bosch? Like... What did you think of Eleanor Wish as a character, for example, as like yeah, a, the main yeah. female character? I'm going to save that until we get to our perpetrator, if that's all right, my feelings on that. So if, if that's if Fair that's enough. a segue into the perpetrator category, then I'm, I'm quite happy and ready to go there. We've, we've both got Let's our scores it. out for investigation. Okay. All right, buddy. So why don't we start with Eleanor? What did you think of her, her motivations? I mean, her as a big bad, because she's not really a big bad. She's one of these morally ambiguous figures. Why don't you give, give your thoughts on Eleanor Wish? It's like she's a female protagonist slash love interest slash femme fatale archetype slash red herring archetype. She's all like one package, essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, yet, for some reason, I think it's because we couldn't get into her way of thinking and we're only viewing her through Bosch's eyes. I yeah. did like the yeah. observances that Bosch had towards her and how Connolly wrote it. But she was still a bit of enigma to us, so we never knew, really knew her thoughts. So we could yeah. only speculate as to what she is in the narrative. And he didn't. And the author never gave her any uh, any narrative voice, uh, any like internal voice of her own, right? So yes, it kind of makes her a bit of a MacGuffin in her own way, and also a bit of a perpetrator. And as I said, like she has this many dimensions in the story. So I wasn't quite sure yeah. what to think of her. I didn't dislike her character. I I, no, I didn't find no. her annoying. Um, mm-hmm. I found her at the beginning, the, the prickly, the prickliness, the, her being a bit prickly with him at the beginning was just, you know, the typical, uh, that like that dichotomy between fed and uh, local police, right? That always yeah, exists. Yeah. Uh, then, but we saw you know, a lot of that inside the, 
inside the office as well. So we're never really quite true. sure of how, how authentic that was, right? Yes, that's definitely true. Is she like, putting on she the was, show? She right? was putting on the show for Rourke and, for Rourke. and whatnot. So, yes. Yeah. So I, I, but what about her motivation though? Like if we, if we take what she says at the end about her brother and all of that, like, do you want to, do you want to dig into that a bit? I'm, well, I'm kind of surprised and that in a way that she wasn't going all out to like, I suppose like it's one of those situations where revenge is a, di- is a dish best, cur- best served cold because she never wanted to just outright kill him for what, what Rourke did to her brother and whatnot mm-hmm. or, or kill Trin and, uh, or kill uh, Din and and, and uh, sorry Bin Tran. and Tran. Uh, instead, they wanted she wanted to just kind of like unravel their whole organization and bring it all down, right? Mm-hmm. She never expected um, anybody to get killed, but no, like Meadows, for yeah. example, yeah. Mm-hmm. But Meadows screwed yeah. up because he was he was a junkie, right? So yeah, a sympathetic yeah. character though in an interesting way, and I sympathetic. think that Connolly does a good job of making him. A, a, you know, a bad guy, but he's not a bad guy. I think he's like a lot of, I think he's like a lot of individuals who return from conflict and, you know, they're, they're haunted and they're unsupported by the governments into which they return and they he's, find themselves on skid row, you know, and I, th- I think there's a real yeah. story there, a, re- a real uh, semblance of, of, you know, what you see in, in Not situation. able to adjust. Like that could have been yeah. like Bosch's future in a way. Yeah, yeah. Eleanor, though, like as a, I kind of find I, I, I have difficulty having her as the main perpetrator, but at the same mm-hmm. time, she's also a supporting cast in a way. But she's also kind of a principal in her own way. If we only had an internal voice, I'd argue that she was a principal, and then she's more of like what I said mm-hmm. is like a sub principal. Mm-hmm. Uh, overall, I liked her, I liked her character. Um, I found her duplicity believable. I, I didn't find it cliche. I didn't find anything cliche about her. Like, I found that Connolly was trying to write her in a way that you wasn't trying to, like... At first, when I was reading it, I was like, oh, no, is she going to betray him? And, like, this is going to... Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. you have your expectations as if, you know, they're going to go that route, and that's kind of, that's kind of you know, unfortunate. That's disappointing, you know, and how they're going... I was just really curious, because my, my hackles are always raised when I encounter a female character in, in this context, especially when you're, we're reviewing books that are 20 years ago... That, yeah. are, that yeah. were published 20 years ago or more. Where like those expectations are in your mind, right? But I think especially modern- when you know the writer is a big Marlowe fan. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. And uh, it was not like that's one thing I found that he was not like Marlowe at all was how his his relationship with uh, with, uh-huh. with Eleanor, right? There wasn't anything mm-hmm. forceful. He let her make all the decisions. He was in the driver's seat, and he was happy to be there because I think in a way he needs kind of a maternal figure. And there might be a little bit of a needle pull thing there between him and Eleanor because the way they they, they context their relationship, it was a lot more like it was more of like almost like I, I liked really how much he never emphasized on the sensuality or like the sex of it. It was mm-hmm. more about he needed to be with someone, and and they were kind of like she was almost like cooing at him, like after their first time together and stuff like that. There was a lovey dovey mm-hmm. kind of quality about them until they got to work. And then the tension was back again. Right. But that's the tension is there. Uh, not because of something that he said, but because of the situation that she herself has got her, that she has got herself yeah, into. Yeah. But you we don't know that until we go back. Exactly. Afterwards. So you're wondering like yeah. where they're going with it. Right. So it kind of makes sense. Mm-hmm. Connolly fulfilled her character arc by the end of the story. So, but yeah, it's a perpetrator. She, she, she's point. an accomplice. Very minor perpetrator. I think in terms of our main perpetrator, we obviously have Rourke, Delgado, and Franklin. Those are our main perpetrators, no matter what, right? 
yeah, but they, they themselves weren't very interesting to me. Eleanor seemed to me it was what made that whole group together much more interesting. Uh, mm-hmm. What about? So yeah, so that's my feeling well, Rourke, on Eleanor. Rourke was um, Rourke was kind of like a, a nobody. Like he he was disappointing as as a big bad in or a main perpetrator because he was kind of faceless and. You know, he had a few scenes, but he was like a loud, angry boss. And you see them all over the place, right? Like, yeah, loud guy who also had military service, but it was not really re- uncovered until you get the letters at the end. You know, the, the role he had in, in enabling yeah. Tran to come across into the country and, and having Meadows as his sort of, uh, you know, aid. Um, it was all very, it just kind of felt pat, you know, his character. And and then the talking head bit in the tunnel at the end failed to motivate me to any great emotion, to be honest. No, and then he gets taken out so easily, right? Like, I found yeah. that, like, that Conley kind of destroyed its climax or kind of, I don't know, weakened its climax with, like, the denouement that, that he planned afterwards to me. Like, it took away a lot of the umph out of it. The only thing really uh-huh. shocking about the climax was was you know the tunnel chase was interesting and and Bosch's feelings towards that like on, in the sewers and whatnot and and how yeah, he was yeah. pretty much helpless and he couldn't do anything and it was Eleanor who saved him. So I do like the fact mm-hmm. that like in a way he has a typical detective situation where he gets knocked out or he's helpless and someone else assists him, right? And that's kind of a staple in detective narratives. There's almost like a, yeah. a picaresque kind of situation, you know, like fighting windmills that you can't bring down, you know, in in, in a way, mm-hmm. it's fighting windmills. Um, and that is what we have at the end of the story, for sure. But I do agree with you that um, it's a weakened climax, but it certainly isn't a bad ending. Like, uh, we we do get a lengthy kind of wrap-up between Eleanor and, um, you know, and Bosch. But the, the tunnel stuff is exciting, and it is kind of transporting us back to the memories, and not the flashbacks, but when he's talking to Eleanor... And she's, you know, telling him, you know, tell me about it or whatever. And he does open up about the uh, about the tunnels. You get, you do get a really good sense of atmosphere there, and that structurally pays into how he's pursuing the perpetrator. So, it it, it fits. It does definitely fit. But it's just too bad that the perpetrator he's pursuing is is just a a bureaucratic, selfish dude. Like he's not he's not really menacing. He's just loud and you know. But maybe there's something in that, Josh. Like maybe there's something in, in that a way, about you know. The guy that I kind of expected to be the big guy in charge was actually they sort of it was a red herring was Scales, the guy who ran like the halfway house for the soldiers. Because think about it, that guy's position, right? He seems like a very kind of gung ho military sort of guy recruiting these young men, these uh, you know these damaged, these broken men to uh, to rehabilitate themselves mm-hmm. on his farm. But in uh, the end, he was actually a good soul. In the end, and uh, yeah, and it's, it's and interesting how that, he was very religious, and the writer didn't like attack him for being religious in the writing. No, I found that no. kind of refreshing too. If anything, when Bosch leaves, um, uh, when when he leaves Charlie Company, he has kind of a moment's reflection, and he communicates to us. I think I made the note in my book that this is him because when I first okay, let me try this again. When Bosch leaves Charlie Company, he has a moment's reflection on Scales, and that's when he, for us as readers, dismisses him as a suspect, I think, and that's kind of when I took the note, because he says this, Scales went back to writing, and Bosch watched him. He was too consumed by his faith and loyalty to see he might have been used. Bosch believed that Scales was a good man, but one who might be too quick to see his beliefs and hopes in someone else, perhaps someone like Meadows. So I think that's his way, Bosch's way, and Connolly's way of saying, you know, he's a red herring. You don't have to worry about him. 
Yeah. But I also found that this was very derivative of the long goodbye with Dr. Veringer's ranch, you know, the halfway mm-hmm. Very heads. similar. It, yeah. Very similar. And you've also got the it Jade reminded bracelet, me of that too. A farewell, my lovely. You know, you, you do have a lot of Marlowe stuff going on in here. Marlowisms. And yeah. 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 Uh, or maybe we call them homages, Generally. you know, because... Homages, you know, yeah. yeah. I, I think they were because they were more subtle to me because now that you mentioned them, I noticed them, but, you know, you were probably more, probably keen, you you, you noticed them a bit more or after some thought, you maybe you, you, you realized it, but... Uh, uh, maybe, maybe. Kind of like, yeah, it, was, it suddenly went out, went under the, ra- the radar for me, but now that you point out, mm-hmm. you point that out, yeah, I totally see that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, so okay, the, so... The perpetrator, we, 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 Rourke, yeah. he, mm-hmm. yeah, he's yeah. basically like, yeah... I, whatever about him but then we have yeah, like we've, we've taken his wise lewis well, we've also got lewis are, are, and clark you know i agree with what you were saying earlier yeah they definitely are antagonists and although i do think that there's a tragic comedy thing to them whatever happened between them and uh bosch in the past is kind of left off the page but we begin this yes. story and they they don't have an interest in bringing them down they have like we said a passion in it so there's definitely a backstory there the relationship is well established and we just kind of pick up the pieces as it's moving along a bit res, you know yeah. we kind of thrown in there i also got the impression though and this kind of throws irving as a bit of an antagonist although i see him more of a series antagonist more so than anything yeah. Um, you know, he's your typical, like, yelling police captain, right? Uh, I can even picture a story, an arc coming in, in the later books where Irving kind of softens towards Bosch or something, or there's, like, a grudging respect. Even in the, even in the, in the last scene with Irving in the hospital, there's kind of a grudging respect there in, in, in a way. Yeah, kind of, yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. But he just, he just wants him out completely, right? So. He does, yeah. Um, he wants him out. He does. He's, he's but managing chess pieces, yeah. Regarding Irving and uh, and and the two guys Clark and Lewis, I really mm-hmm. found that uh, it seemed that Clark and Lewis, uh, while they do hate Bosch, they also realize they want to complete this mission because it seems like they're under the thumb of of uh, Irving and they want to mm-hmm. kind of rise in the IAD. They want to rise oh, and totally. get higher in the organization. So there's also a measure of ambition there, and Bosch is in the way because Bosch is their key to moving up, and he's blocking mm-hmm. it because of the way that he is and the and and how smart and how he's much smarter than them. And that's the key but thing does, too, right? Does Bosch have anything? Like, does Bosch have anything on those two characters? This is what I'm yeah, wondering. Like, like did is he like there yeah, like, did he sleep with their, one of their wives or something, or like, I'm, you know, like yeah, what happened there? <laughs> well, we got yeah, we got to ask the questions because it is so pronounced the way they feel towards bringing them down that it uh, it makes me wonder. But hey, we're talking here, everybody, as first time readers of the first time Bosch mm-hmm. story, so you could very well have the the answer to that question. And if you do, then it's one that we haven't yet discovered. But yeah. Those guys are, are, are perpetrators in their own way. Mm-hmm. But to me, I, I think the main perpetrator of the novel as a whole was definitely Eleanor because she was kind of involved with everything, but she's not a full perpetrator. So that's why I couldn't give like perpetrator mm-hmm. a full yeah, sure. mark in this in this case here. A very interesting type of perpetrator for sure. An interesting play on the femme fatale character, a modern mm-hmm. interpretation of it that to me wasn't condescending or sexist or anything like that. I, I thought she was balanced and written well. So mm-hmm. I'm not going to give a full marks on her, but I'll give a four to the perpetrators. Just, you went just four with Eleanor, the, the ensemble. For the ensemble. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. And she, as I said, it wasn't like a femme fatale. Because I was reading mm-hmm. on the Boss series, uh, apparently Eleanor is a returning character too in in, in the series, uh, in the books, as well as in the TV series. And the, and the femme fatale thing kind of cast my mind because when I was reading the cast, well, I was, when I just first looked at the book and I was reading the IMD cast, I saw that Sarah Clark plays uh, 
Eleanor Wish. And that's funny because mm. if you ever watch 24, Sarah Clark played Nina Myers, who was probably one of the big antagonists of oh, the first couple right. of seasons of 24, cool. right? And uh, I also saw, if you're a 24 fan, that Annie Wershing, who played Renee in the later seasons, mm-hmm. also has a recurring role on, on the series. So, But again, like, does, does, does Eleanor Wish become a recurring, like, I know we, we, we know she goes to jail, but will she become a recurring villain or a recurring criminal or a pain, like a thorn in the side? Like, I'm curious to see where they go with their character. Yeah, I wonder. I wonder yeah. what they will do there. It's definitely a setup, anyway. So we have a perpetrator, technically, but we also have a character that's been set up for more, most likely, uh, or yeah. is like, no, not likely, is set up for more, with a book that's set up for, with, with a story that's set up for more, but in the denouement. So perpetrator as an ensemble, I think that's a fair um, assessment. Okay, buddy. Do you want to talk about Franklin before we move away from perp? Franklin and Delgado were sort of just mercs, and we never really got mm-hmm. into their characters. Uh, Delgado, Dergarmo, Der, Der you know what I mean? From uh, yeah. Farewell, My Lovely. There's definitely some moments oh, going yeah. on here. Delgarmo was not in Farewell, My Lovely. He was in uh, The Lady in the Lake. Lady in the Lake, Delgarmo, right on. Yep, yep, yep. Yeah, there's yep. some... For, oh, yeah, absolutely. Delgado just, to me, seemed a very kind of just like a, uh, like a Latin name, and I just, just mm-hmm. kind of fit, yeah. What did you think, Josh, about the culture of the perpetration? Like the the fact that Bin and Tran have run, running these businesses behind the scenes, they've got these diamonds pocketed away. Like, I mean, <clears throat> how believable was it to you that figures like them could access the United States securities and things and kind of get in and have a new life in a domestic place? You know what I mean? Like how, after the war, how did you find that in terms of um, in terms it, of serendipity? Re- or I never really questioned it. To me, it seemed like yeah, that sounds about. But right, yeah. Post Vietnam, you think of all the drugs and stuff that were done and betrayed, mm-hmm. like in in, mm-hmm. in terms of documentaries and in any kind of yeah. media about the Vietnam War, and you know a lot of nasty stuff went on down there: prostitution, drugs, you know, a whole bunch of stuff. Right? There was a lot of corruption over there because it was welcomed in, in a way, and it was the only kind of way to get things done uh, in, yeah. in, in, in yeah. that territory. And so I can see how that th- those people who did work on that, like Rourke, working with the two the triad, so to speak. And I can see yeah. how that carried overseas uh, back to the United States and whatnot. And, and how able, like in you know, the American dream, Din, uh, sorry, Tran and Ben were able to settle themselves uh, there mm-hmm. and uh, do what they, you know, and do what they do. And I really like their portrayal in the story. Like there wasn't anything overtly kind of racist you would see in older no, kind of texts no. at all. No. And they seemed like very, like kind of, they were well-made businessmen and whatnot. But uh, just, I, I could picture some, some of the scenes when, when that scene, when Bosch, puts the bug in the phone. Uh, mm, that was a very well done like scene that. too. Yeah, that, that was a good yeah. scene. And it was a good, good encounter. Like you got a menace from Tran, but you never really got known as a character, but he just had presence when he was in the story, you know? And mm-hmm. I like the fact that you have like, these big figures who could have much more uh, details to have much more details to them that you could explore and extrapolate and, and make more exciting or exotic. If, 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 uh, if, if you want to use that word, but you know, Connolly is like, no, these people exist and they have their own colorful backgrounds, but we're not going to really touch on them too much. We'll just have them <laughs> yeah, right. make their appearance yeah. in the story and have, you know, this have them like, you know, as a, as a larger solar body and the satellites around it and then move on, right? That's sort of mm-hmm. how it's done. And that's how you do that's how you world build. That's how you create a uh, believable universe in your in your in your novel. 
So let's move on to environs then, pal. Uh, or, I mean, you went for a four with your perpetrator. I went for three and a half, okay? So we're not too far away there. I just felt, generally speaking, they were spread a bit too thin for anyone to be particularly menacing as a perp. But I agree with what you're saying about the complexity of the, the ensemble. And uh, that that's maybe more real to life. The idea of collaborative villains, you know? This isn't a yes. James Bond story, after all. Um, exactly. Okay, so environs then. Uh... Well, it's not Raymond Chandler's de depiction of Los Angeles, that's for sure. Nope, definitely. But it's also yeah. a very different Los Angeles. Um, it is, it is. But I don't feel like I get that character. Um, this is just me speaking now. I, I, it's urban sprawl has a little bit of definition to it, but we, we don't get we don't get pubs, we don't get bars no. and restaurants that are characterized or any sort of workers in that environment. We don't. We don't yeah, get anything true. of the Bosch's nature. Bosch's house, and maybe? That's really the only Bosch's thing. Bosch's house, home. yep. That's right. Now That's what we're allowed to I, see. I, on this point of Los Angeles, it's interesting because um, I kind of disagree with Ian Rankin, who compliments Connolly's rendering of Los Angeles. Rankin argues, Josh, that Connolly depicts two hells in the story, okay? The first is Vietnam, and the second is Los Angeles. I get the first one but I don't really get the feel that this Los Angeles is like a hell for Harry Bosch. Hellish nights. No, I don't get that. But Rankin even goes as far as to describe the Los Angeles that Connolly writes with this expression, okay? He says that he uses the same acidic elegance that Raymond Chandler does. I think that's a sound bite. I think that's a quote for the journalists because I do not at all see Los Angeles rendered in this story uh, in a way equal to, or even an effort equal to, what Chandler was trying to do by making the city a character in itself throughout his sweep. Mm. I, I don't know if, if it improves through the series, but uh, Bosch's house is really remarkable. And it's described, and I love the way he gets it, you know, from like selling this royalty check because they wanted to use his name in a television show. Like, I think that's really <laughs> neat. And the way that it the way it hangs over and has a view of the city, I like that. It reminds me of Amthor's house in Farewell, My Lovely, the little eagle's yeah. nest that, that kind of looms the, over the, the cliff. The, you know? can, the, can, the cantilever reminds me also totally, of like yeah. Riggs Riggs house in uh, I don't know if it was Riggs house, but I think it was I'm trying to think of Lethal Weapon Two. That was the one where they pulled the cantilever house down with the truck and it went over the cliff or something like that. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. That was one of the uh, the cantilever mm -hmm. homes. Well, I mean, it was it, that stuff was good. There was some definition to to Bosch's house for sure, but Los Angeles. I mean, this this could have been this this could have been downtown Boston. This could have been Chicago. I didn't yeah. feel like a Los Angeles vibe from this. We got smog. They mentioned, and we got they heat. mentioned definite yeah smog and heat. Yeah, uh, we got like the, we got the typical descriptions of pollution of some some of the fora like you know they mentioned palm leaves and stuff like that. They mentioned landmarks and they mentioned Sunset Boulevard. But we don't get kind of like the romantic interpretations of it. Instead, we get like no. Sunset Boulevard, off of Sunset Boulevard, where you think of this very kind of idealized version of what it was. We just mm -hmm. see basically kids rolling uh, poor homosexuals like in parking lots yeah, of gas yeah. stations, you know, like, or we, or it's all about the expressways. It's all about the sewers. It's all about, uh, you know, the, this, the, uh, the, the water pipes. It's all about. Well, you know what? The, You're right. And maybe I'm missing these, that. These maybe, ugly maybe I've structures. missed that. It's Maybe like that's it's a post. it. Yeah, like it's a Chinatown thing. Maybe it's a Chinatown Los Angeles. Maybe it's not a Chandler Los Angeles. And maybe I've missed that characterization mm -hmm. that you're pointing out Possibly. because you're right. Looking back on it now, I mean, most of what we get in terms of 
feel is industry. We get sewer, we get roadworks, and and you're right. Maybe that's maybe that's what I'm supposed to have looked and zoned in on. But everything else yeah. is just a signpost for me. Like there's Beverly Hills, yes. there's Hollywood Hills, there's Mulholland Dam. But it's just road signs on Atlas points. Like it didn't, it didn't really, yes. it didn't get characterized for me. So a- I might have. And then it. we get institutions. We get op- mm-hmm. We get offices of like uh, we we get offices of. Like, we don't get Hollywood. We don't get that Los Angeles feel you would get from Chandler or other people of the genre. We just get this kind of, like, this modern 90s Los Angeles that's just, like, uh, expressways and heat and smog. And the typical way we look at Los Angeles, I guess, from nowadays, with a very deglamorized feel to it. Like, they're trying to... Cynical Los Angeles, Mm. even more so than Marlowe, who, as I said, still has hope at that time when he's describing Los Angeles, and it doesn't. And I I think what Rankin might be saying is, is that Los Angeles is like a hell of this urbanization of this great sprawl of like concrete and heat and smog and corruption and all that sort of stuff. It's the same Mm. hellish Los Angeles that existed in the '40s, but it's uglier now. Yeah, yeah. Okay, fair enough. I, I'm just a sucker for setting, and I love a nice setting when it's developed well. And I felt like you got a city that, and you know, if I wanted to give, if I wanted to give credit, I would say that the lack of definition is by itself definition. Do you know, it, it's saying that the city's too big to have a single character, just like the book's too big to have a single perp. I don't know. I'm 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 stretching here for credit, but I went for a three overall because um, I don't think that the environment is uh, a big deal in the story, to be honest. Like, the crime scenes are established and described okay. But aside from Bosch's home, they're ephemeral, the other settings. They they don't really stick. They're offices without dimension, without color. And, mm. you know, there's not, not a lot of smells, not a lot of flavor or sensual writing, if you see my word, in this, no. in, in this book. So I, I wouldn't recommend this book on the category for environments, uh, even though I passed it with a three. I wouldn't. Yeah. Uh, I wouldn't go much higher. I, what, what did you say? Am, am I being harsh? No, I, you're. I, I was maybe a little more generous. I gave it three and a half. Okay. All right. Cool. Well, I, um, I, 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 I feel the way that you do about it. I wanted a bit more in the environs. I wanted to kind of, but I also understand the world that he's portraying. I have a feeling though he may grow uh, at Connolly from this point on. I have a feeling if I were to pursue the series, I would say he he might get a bit more descriptive uh, about Los Angeles as it goes and stuff. And, and maybe yeah. when he deals into certain characters and stuff, he describes a part of Los Angeles that we normally don't see, you know? So, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. I like his, I liked his description of like, I liked how he described police stations and halfway houses. And I liked how he described like all the institutions. I liked how he talked about like stuff you wouldn't think of Los Angeles to be in your mind, which could really be any place in any, like in anywhere USA. But that's right. That's that's what I come back to. The macro is yeah. described fine, the yeah. systems and the institutions, but the micro is kind of lacking in the story for me. Um, what about secondary characters? Let's finish off our chat then. Let's talk about the supporting cast. I think this was this is actually my strongest mark in the entire uh, review of the pipes. Okay. Uh, for okay. uh, I gave it a five. Wow. I know that sounds that's, like a lot. That's but good, man. That's good. It's it's effusive. I like it. Tell me why. Uh, well, I just found cool. that every character in this... I found that almost every character in this story were... They just... 
fit every scene they were in. There was nothing to me that was extraneous. There was something that, mm-hmm. I, you know, like even though there was vignettes presented to me of characters that come and go out of the narrative, I wasn't bored by them in any fashion. I found like they were all in, and they were all like, you know, in uh, Bosch's wake and uh, he interacted with them and they de-interacted with them and they went out, in and out of his life, but they served their functions in the, in the, in the great world that in this world that uh, Connolly is creating for us. And they, they, they did their jobs very well. Like, and, they also helped you know give us points towards the character building the character and building the story like for example Lewis and Clark you know that mm. their whole presence in the whole in the whole thing draw in a way leads us to the climax because of their relationship with Bosch and Irving's relationship with Bosch uh Eleanor's relationship with Bosch and how we per- and we perceive it drives the narrative uh then we have examples you know like just the, the little details that are great you know like the owner of the of the hotel that uh, Billy Meadows was staying in, or mm-hmm. for example, mm-hmm. uh, the homosexual man who gets who gets beaten yeah. up by mm-hmm. the uh, by the kids, right, mm-hmm. um, or, or the gang of, of young men, anyways, or and, and Sharky's mom too, you know, Sharky's <clears throat> mom, yeah, lively characters in there. Then you have. I like, really like what you said, though. I really like what you said earlier about Sharky's mom and how you know she might even remind Bosch of his own mom, you know, in, in a sick sort of, not in a sort of, uh, in, in a pathetic kind of tragic in a pathetic way. sort of way, in a tragic sort of way. And maybe that's what amplifies his sympathy for Sharky because he sees a little bit of himself there, a kid who has yes. gone off the wrong way. He didn't have a war he could go join up for to become a hero. Yeah. And I, I use that term flexibly, but he didn't have a way out the way that Bosch did, even though I don't think Bosch would refer to, or any service person would refer to the Vietnam War as a way out. You see my point, though. Like, you could sign up yeah. and go make something of your life. Sharky has to go to the streets because his mom is essentially orphaned him in a different way, right? And it's yeah. it's just it's very it's interesting, and I agree with you that she uh, or that the, the supporting cast color and add something. They're not just there, you know. They add something. Yeah. I also like, for example, little like even the character of Pounds, like. I found that like he was one of those typical on the paper. He's one of those typical uh, overbearing boss kind of characters. Right. But also in the same way, it seems like he wanted Bosch to do better, not just for his department, but just for him himself. And he seemed almost like Mm -hmm. disappointed with him, uh, you know, but he still has to follow the company line. Like there was a sympathy that you had for Pounds. I didn't dislike the guy like I disliked Irving from the get-go, you know what I mean? I I had Mm -hmm. sympathy for Pounds more than I had sympathy for Lewis and Clark. I wish I kind of understood them a little bit more, why they hated him so much, but I have my own, you know, feelings put towards it. Then you have guys like Scales, great red herrings like him, for example, and almost Mm -hmm. anyone Mm -hmm. at that halfway house. Uh, there's people just inhabiting roles in the story and then coming into coming into it like even as I was mentioning earlier we're talking about the perpetrators like uh, Ben and Tran like they come mm-hmm. into the story they're not huge parts of the story but they're part of this but they come off as living individuals oh, yeah, they're de- regardless of, of, their, yep. of their plot purpose you know mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. I liked how everyone inhabited this world it has that I you know that Dickensian feel and uh, I think yeah, that, you're that's a sucker a really you're a of, sucker for Dickens and yeah uh, yeah I'm, I'm, I can almost guess when you're going to go big on a secondary cast because whenever there's a lot yeah. of them and they all interact and there's little maze going on, I reckon that that's the story yeah. Josh is going to Josh is going to succeed with that one. <laughs> 
Yeah. I also like Jerry well, overall, Edgar. He's a, he's a neat partner because we forgot talking you know, about we forgot about Jerry Edgar. Yeah, well, I haven't forgotten about him, but he's um, he's pretty interesting because you know he's a decent cop, but he's only in it for the pension. He's really interested in yes. real estate, you know, the real and, estate. Yeah, and the conflict that he brings isn't a conflict against Bosch because they're they're friends and they trust each other, but he does bring a certain conflict because if he does anything that's wrong then he'll lose his place. And so he's not looking to follow the line to be like a wonderful cop or an example of righteousness, yeah. but he wants his pension so he can go do the work he really wants to do. And yeah, I think, I think that that's, that's really neat. You know, he doesn't want his goal jeopardized, his, his goal of, uh, of, of a happy real job. It's, it's funny to think of police work as something you're doing on the side, but that's kind of how Jerry Edgar goes. I'd be interested to see how his character develops in the, in the series. Yeah, I agree. Another character too I was thinking of is Sakai. I mean, he's only in the beginning, really, but he yeah, seemed like one of those people. Who, yeah, he's cool. The pathologist, but he plays for he. What's the term? He plays for the uh, the, the family, right? So, mm-hmm. oh, he's you a foil. Tell he dis- yeah, definitely. Yeah, and he dislikes Bosch a lot because he just wants to solve the get solve the murder as well, get it done, and then that's it, right? Yeah. yeah. But Bosch is like no, that's not happening. Like, this is what's happening here and stuff. And you <laughs> yeah. can tell right away how you define Bosch as a character and you learn about him just through Sakai's reaction to him yeah. and how and much Bosch hates Sakai as dramatic presentation. Well. That's dramatic characterization. Yes. And I think that's what Connolly does quite nicely here is he lets his main character not be defined by information drops and let me tell you all about him narrative, but instead by the reactions of other characters. It's very much theatrical, very much dramatic. Yes. And I, I appreciate that. I always like that. And I think that's what Rankin was talking about when he talked, you know, credit for not stretching out the biography through info drops, you know, it's through the characters. Yes. So I agree with you on the secondary ta- the secondary cast. I went four out of five overall. I wasn't as, I wasn't as uh, glowing as you were, but um, I, I'm, that's good. That's good. So before we, um, before we tally up the scores and, um, and say goodbye, uh, last words on the Black Echo recommendations because I think we would both recommend the book maybe for different reasons and and maybe at different levels. Um, I would recommend the book if you want to. I think if you want to just read a good like thriller, like a good cop thriller procedural, like it's definitely um, well written. Um, it's not like poetic or anything like that. It doesn't come to Raymond Chandler's kind of muscular prose in any way, but it definitely has a simplicity to it. Which I said, it has these that has a simplicity in the words, but there's so much in the detail of those declarations to me that tell the, that really tell the story well. And I found that um, I just found like I found it like a living, breathing world, and the, the characters to me came to life as I read it. And mm-hmm. I was never really taken out of that world from beginning to the end. I mean, the fact that how the chapters are constructed also prevents that from happening a lot too. Mm-hmm. Yes, it because, does. Like, yeah, you want to say something how, about Con- that? Yeah, Connolly. He um, for those when you go pick up the book, you'll notice that um, if you're one of those people going, "Well, I'll just go finish this chapter and then I'll put it down and do what <laughs> I have you to won't. do," you can't do that. You got to get a bookmark or a dog or dog ear it, man. Because yes, yeah, he goes yeah, on. Yeah, or end he likes his chapter or end or end at the paragraph break or something. Mm-hmm, that's, mm-hmm. That's, yeah, that's all. You, that's my advice long, with him. Yeah. Well, you did say, long. Josh. You did but say it's that, that flow uh, of. of uh, I guess it's, he has that flow that I think that works for him. Yeah. And you did say, Josh, that uh, Bosch's 
probably your favorite principal that you've met so far in the series, or so far this season, you know, in reading. You said that earlier today, and you gave after him a fall Rebus, and a half. Yeah. Which, yeah, yeah, that's... After Rebus, that's really sure. That's really good. So my question then, naturally stemming from that, is will you read the next one? Will you will you go on and read another Bosch on your own time? Or maybe for the show in the future? Yeah, I, I think I'd check out the next book. Yeah. Cool. Absolutely. Nice one. I'm definitely going to check out the uh, television series, but... I'm kind of trepidatious about that because I also don't want to spoil the book. So I'm caught at a crossroads, right? So mm, I don't know. Yeah. I have to think about that. <laughs> well, television does. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't know. I can't tell you whether it'll be a spoiler or not because I haven't pursued it myself. But uh, I would also recommend The Black Echo. I thought it was a really good read. I was never bored with the story. And I think that if you have an interest in... Um, in military history, or if you have an awareness of the contributions that the Vietnam War and its politics played in the development of, you know, post-70s America, I think you would find this really interesting, you know. I think you'd get a lot more in the characters of Bin and Tran maybe than I did. I think you would get a lot more in the sympathy between, uh, or the sympathy for Meadows that um, that our principal Bosch feels for him than perhaps I did. I think that this is a story that, unlike Knots and Crosses, which played on the SAS background, I feel like this one was woven in a little bit better. Now, that's not me saying I like this book better, but I do think that Harry Bosch's experience in Vietnam was alive more in this particular story than the SAS treatment, even though it was so important to that story as well. You know, you think about the perpetrator in Knots and Crosses who mm. also had that connection. Um, you can check out uh, you can check out our episode on that to see what I'm talking about. Yeah, they're but, a good comparison for books yeah. to read because yeah, they have yeah, a similar yeah. sort of setup in a way. Similar setup, I mean, yeah. the, well, the terms of like the main character of the, of the, perpet of the uh, principles, but mm -hmm. at the same time, you also have those like the systemic problems that envelop the police departments of Los Angeles and of course of Edinburgh. You have that like layer of like you have like you know los angeles postcard city hollywood yeah. all that sort of stuff edinburgh postcard city uh edinburgh scum. castle yeah. and then Cloudy beneath that you have yeah. all this scum in the pond exactly mm -hmm, mm -hmm. yeah you're right man and uh it's nice to see these two authors uh you know commenting on each other's work too or at least yeah. rankin rankin does so yeah i would recommend it i uh, went four over to five for it so let, let's Let's tally up our finals then, Josh. Uh, you are at a sure. 21 out of 25 for The Black Echo. So this is one of the higher scoring stories for you this year, my friend. All right. Yeah. What was my, is that my, is that my highest one so far or is... I believe uh, did, so. Uh, we'll do a fact check. Did, um, we'll do a numbers check for our next episode and we can do a little check. For... I'm curious to see how it compares to Knots and Crosses. Mm-hmm. And I was an 18 out of 25. So this is this is a, 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 an interesting episode because we are three and a half points away here. You liked this one considerably more than I did, but I still liked it and I would still recommend yeah. it. And I think that uh, whoever picks up the Black Echo uh, looking for, as you said, a good police, good cop procedural, a good investigation was also going to get a good character story too, regardless of whether the environments are a little bit flat. Um, this is a good writer, man, uh, Michael Connolly, and I, I would join you in the reading of a second Bosch story. Absolutely. I would, I would like right. that. That would, that would be good. So, yeah, it's two, thumb, oh, two thumbs up from us, I guess. Our pipes would say so, at least. Yeah, we're going to have to do maybe sometime down the road, like the second readings. So try, like, <laughs> That's right, yeah. Like, like basically what we're doing is we're going through all, we're doing a survey, and then we're going, 
you know, we'll have like a, a half season or or quarter season of just reading like the follow up books to these mm-hmm. authors, right? Like, mm-hmm. and they can be quicker. They can be quicker book. shows. Yeah, yeah, exactly. We could do like two in a two in one episode or something like that. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah there's uh, definitely cool. scope there. Anyway, everyone, thanks for listening and thanks for uh, taking us uh, taking a ride with yeah, us please. here as we as we went down taking a ride with us as we went down for. Uh, we went down into the tunnels, didn't we? Of the Black Echo, really, Josh? Yeah, we, we went down into the tunnels. Absolutely. Ah, so, uh, if if you'd like to let us know what you thought of the book, or indeed of the show, um, how things are going for you as a reader, uh, get us on the pipes. Uh, get us on the socials, lighten the pipes. Uh, we, you can find us at Instagram, or you can email us at lightingpipes at gmail dot com. And yeah, you know, wherever you download your podcast, give us a review. It's it's always nice to hear from you. But Josh. Coming up before Christmas, we're going to read some Edgar Allan Poe, aren't we? We're going to we're going to put these Edgar Awards into context finally after so long. We definitely are. Yeah, so we're going I'm looking to looking forward to that. Me too. We're going to uh, take we're going to tackle Edgar Allan Poe's three Inspector Dupin stories and or Dup- Detective Dupin, Inspector D- Dupin, Inspector. Yeah, Dupin, Inspector Dupin. That's right. We'll uh, we'll take those on next time, and I'll see you back here soon on Lighting the Pipes. So, Josh, thank you very much, my good man. And it's been a lot of fun. We'll see you in December. Ciao. Bye, everybody.